So yeah, sorry. Continue the early topic back to here, <laughs> but I know Rob will edit this part out. Nope, it's well, all staying it. Okay. <laughs> I separate this stuff into like a mid-show section. So <laughs> yeah, I figured <laughs> this is this is the stuff that I mine for the cold open. You know, if we don't have an obvious like funny flub up in the main recording, never flub up though. Flubba bubba bubba. Hubba bubba bubba. Wubba wubba lub dub. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that says everyone is welcome, unless you don't think people should be welcome. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And this is episode 218, and, uh, well, our main topic is going to be the new Engine War book that just came out this week, uh, but um, there's, there's, there's been some things going on. Maybe, maybe you've saw, seen the news. So, um, we are going to talk about some of the ninth edition releases, but before that, um, so yeah, you may have noticed the news about various protests, uh, kicked off by the death of, of a black man in police custody. And, uh, that has led to, well, it's led to quite a bit. And, uh, I know a few years ago we made a very clear declaration that this show would be a politics-free zone because we do feel that, like, we have friends who are on different sides of the aisle and we enjoy gaming with all of them. However, this is not a political issue. I don't care how you feel about, like, tax policy and foreign affairs and things like that. I mean, those are things... I mean, I do care, but those are things that can be discussed outside the realm of the game. But when we're talking about treating each other as people, um, that's a big thing. And that is that is something that transcends that. That is a human rights issue. And we've always been very big on having an environment where everyone feels welcome to be part of the hobby. We're very big on encouraging people to join the hobby. And we're apparently not the only ones because this week, Games Workshop came out with a very clear statement. I would say an unequivocal statement on how they feel about it. I'm going to read it out loud for the people who are on the recording session, but for the audio, for the rest of you, you're going to get to hear the wonderful voice of Toby Longworth read this. And Toby Longworth is a voice actor who has done a lot of, a lot of GW audiobooks, including the entire Eisenhorn series, the Ravener series, several of the Gaunt's Ghosts. Now, basically, if Dan Abnett writ- has written it, there's probably a good chance Toby Longworth read it. Uh, so I'm going to play that audio now. Warhammer is for everyone. One of the great powers of our hobby is its ability to bring people together in common cause, to build bonds and friendships that cross divides. We believe in and support a community united by shared values of mutual kindness and respect. Our fantasy settings are grim and dark, 
but that is not a reflection of who we are or how we feel the real world should be. We will never accept nor condone any form of prejudice, hatred or abuse in our company or in the Warhammer hobby. We will continue to diversify the cast of characters we portray through miniatures, art and storytelling so everyone can find representation and heroes they can relate to. And if you feel the same way, wherever and whoever you are, we're glad you are part of the Warhammer community. If not, you will not be missed. That is quite the statement. Yeah, I, <laughs> I like that they were unequivocal and they were powerful about it. Like, that's that's good. Well, and you can also tell that these aren't just words, because just look at the models they've been putting out. Look at the stories they've been putting out. They've been doing what they can to back everything up that they just said in this statement. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and sometimes it, it can seem like minor things, um, like they expanded their paint line not too long ago and added a bunch of additional like skin tone paints for more realistic like black skin tones and tan skin tones. Um, they've been presenting more you know definitely having more more female characters like we've got what severina rain the uh commissar that they added what last year or earlier this year it yeah it was last last year year. um or the new inquisitor that they've got coming out with the pariah book obviously the sisters are a big push and they've been painting sisters with of again a variety of skin tones and you know characters featured on various novels and comics and things like that are, you know, represent a diversity of, of racial types. So, um, yeah, I mean, they definitely have been putting their money where their mouth is. And the, the community has been, I think, overwhelmingly positive in response to this. There has been some, a little bit of pushback, but those people, like, I've, I've watched the Twitter feeds from, like, the Warhammer community page and the Facebook comments on, like, the Warhammer TV page. And the comments overall from the community have been mirroring that last line of it, you will not be missed. And GW kind of addressing that established toxicity in the, in the player base is, is a big thing. You know, it's a big thing for a company to say, if, if you're going to be a bigot, we don't want you here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was actually this was preceded slightly by uh, Carl from the Independent Characters uh, making ve- pretty much the same statement, saying you know, and he was actually putting some of his money into I think like one of the AC or the NAACP Justice Funds. Uh, he actually spent a Carl on it, which warmed my heart because uh, it was five hundred dollars. Uh, and then he followed up like with that statement, like, and if you don't believe that this community should be inclusive and welcoming to everyone, then maybe you should listen to a different show. And then yesterday, Adepticon followed up with the following statement. Our nation has come to a historic crossroad and inflection point that demands action. No organization, no community, no individual has the luxury or privilege to remain silent any longer. The days of evading the harsh truths laid bare by the, the events of the last few weeks are over. Attempting to ignore or sidestep these facts for the sake of remaining, quote, non-political, unquote, or avoiding controversy are tantamount to tacit approval of the systemic injustice we as a nation are now confronting. To build 
of future together, we must listen to those in immediate peril. Black lives must matter. The rules must be equal so the lives of all marginalized people are afforded the same opportunities, respect, and dignity as those privileged enough to not have to deal with daily injustice. Adepticon has always prided itself on presenting to our attendees the highest quality of event possible, and inclusivity has been an integral priority. Everyone is welcome and valued at Adepticon. Gaming is a diverse community, and we are much stronger for it. If anyone has new ideas or constructive input for us on how we can better serve our communities, we are eager to listen. Adepticon stands with people across the country as they exercise their First Amendment rights to peacefully protest. We reject every form of racism, bigotry, and intolerance, and we believe that the vast majority of our attendees feel the same way. We encourage everyone to recognize the moment we are in. Be present. Be teachable. Be open. Seek out experiences you were not aware of or have chosen to forget. And listen, that's the way we all move forward together. While not quite saying the... And if you don't agree, you don't belong here. I think also unequivocally unequivocally stating that they reject every form of racism, bigotry, and intolerance is still a – I mean, it's pretty much saying like, yeah, if you believe those things, yeah, we do not agree with you in any way, shape, or form. So, I mean, having one of the biggest events come out of this, one of the biggest podcasts come out and say this, having the, the you know, the mothership come out and say this, uh, and – I think I can safely speak for everyone here that we unequivocally agree with all of these statements. Indeed. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So uh, no matter like who you are, no matter uh, you know what your ethnic background is, no matter um, what, what gender you are, no matter, you know, who you love, no matter what deity or deities you do or don't worship, you are, you know, this is a place where you are welcome. And, but if you think any of those people are bad because of the base facts of who they are, I, I mean, you may want to listen to a different show. Because the thing is, we all know that the real enemy in this gaming world is the dice. The dice hate everyone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the dice, dice don't, don't care who you anyone. are. They will They're hate just you unequivocally. Partial. I it, they are they are impartial but they're assholes. <laughs> okay, I can't argue that. <laughs> but uh yes, uh I I'm I'm proud of of all of these groups for making making this statement especially at this time when it's very important that we don't let you know cuz silence implies agreement. So at a time like this, it's very important to to stand up and say, yeah, this isn't right. This is not how things should be. And so, yeah. So the hobby is is really coming together. The vast majority uh, of the hobby is coming together and uh, ma- taking a stand. And I think I, I think it's it's really good to see. Because and again, I understand I, I've seen a number of people say that like, well, I just, you know, I, I don't want politics being brought in my game or I come to this game to escape from the real world. And I think the best comment I saw, and I can't remember where I saw it. it I believe it was on Twitter. But the best comment I saw in response to that, well, I just want to get away from the world and play my game. I don't want the real world brought into this. The best comment was, be glad you have the luxury to, to be able to turn it off because yeah. not everybody gets to. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
huh, a breather. And now moving on. Um, so uh, obviously this week, uh, Games Workshop has released also a lot of up or a lot of teasers. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So obviously this week, GW has released a lot of information and not nearly everything yet, but a lot of information on kind of the some of the major changes that are happening with ninth edition. And they did this through uh, three different uh, Warhammer 40k dailies on Twitch, which they then followed up with uh, Warhammer community page posts. So we're going to go through those uh, because that's our news and new releases. Um, they had the only thing announced for pre-release this week was the new uh, aeronautica set that has Tau and Imperial guard, which is cool. Yeah. I'll and- say this. I-, I look at it and I'm like, man, that, might be enough to get me into aeronautica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had actually talked with somebody locally uh, about possibly splitting a box, although it's kind of difficult to play right now. But and I'm, I'm, I want to see less and less aeronautica stuff, just because the more I see it, the more I'm intrigued and interested, and I mm-hmm. can't get into another. another ah, I know the, the the feeling. Adeptus Titanicus calls me the same way. I'm like, this looks so cool. I don't have the time or space for another game. I will say this for me, this is way cheaper than going and buying more Barracudas from Forge World. So the, like, that is well. that is true. They are much smaller and less expensive. Start saving for Manta, Kev. <sighs> you know, eventually they're gonna come out with an Aeronautica Manta. Oh, absolutely. At that point I'll buy a plastic yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh so we'll start off with the first one, which is about match play and points and the app. So uh, with match play, they wanted to make sure that the missions are uh, fun, balanced. And, and also, as a side note, every major organization or convention has announced that they are using this. Adepticon, for their ma- for their championship tournament, is going to use the match play missions from the book. Uh Reese has announced that ITC events, like or like frontline gaming events, I should say specifically, mm-hmm. frontline gaming events will be using the missions from the book. Uh, Nova Open, Mike Brandt is involved, so like Nova Open is obviously going to be using the events. So we're really starting to look at one of the first times in a long time, in several years, that we have a unified mission set across everybody, but like that is actually like the official missions. That just kind of feels weird because i mean it's sort of like in the past players found the their own i guess problem units and then would kind of control them via missions so now having a homogenized mission list for it sounds like everybody or at least all the big players are going to be using it it'll probably be easier for gw to balance and they've been in front of things on well not in front of things one month behind of balancing things after one of the big <laughs> events. So it's yeah. kind of interesting, cool. And I don't know what to think. No, I, well, I like it. I like yeah. it because like you said, like there's exploits that happen in ITC missions that don't happen in the Nova missions that don't happen in, you know, the GW narrative missions. So it's like having one unified set just makes it so much easier for them to balance it. And I think that there's, you know, the real possibility that, this could be potentially the most balanced edition. Now I want everybody to isolate that bit of audio and play it back to me in six months when the game's broken as shit. But you know, <laughs> but like the, the potential at least is there. Like, I think this is moves them closer to where they want the game to be. 
to be able to balance it and quickly respond to changes, which I think they've done a much better job over the last several years of responding to. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, and I imagine they'll keep keep that up. They'll keep on top of it. But uh, something else I thought was interesting is that the different game sizes, so there are, there are four different game sizes officially. Combat Patrol, which has a 500-point limit. Incursion, 1,000-point. Strike Force, 2,000-point. And Onslaught, 3,000-point. Uh, as we mentioned in our last episode, that's going to determine how many command points you get, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. Uh, but it also determines what set of missions you have available. They've actually designed the missions based on how many points there will be on the table. So, for example, if you're playing a 2,000-point mission, it's not going to be the same missions as you would be playing at a 1,000-point game because they understand that the 1,000-point game, army capabilities are different. Same with a five, 500, same with a 3,000-point game. So each one of those sets has a different mission, hack it, a different set. Uh, and then every mission is going to share one primary, but every game you will pick from a set of secondaries and there'll be some standardized secondaries and then individual codexes may have or missions may have additional secondaries so for example uh, like one thing they, they they give some examples so secondary objectives when you are instructed to select secondary objectives you can select from any presented here in addition to any sub secondary objective listed on the mission you are playing you can score no more than 15 victory points from each secondary objective you select during the mission which by the way these games will be, like, the numbers will be higher scoring than you're used to for, like, ITC. Because I think the primary objectives limit you to scoring no more than 15 points per round. Which is way more than the four or five, obviously. Uh, and then secondaries, you can score up to 15 for each secondary you pick. Each secondary objective listed below has a category. When you select secondary objectives, you cannot choose more than one from each category. So we're kind of seeing that more recent ITC no overlap change. Uh, so, for example, purge the enemy, assassinate, or purge the enemy type. The mission is assassinate. Endgame objective, score three point victory points at the end of the battle for each enemy character model that is destroyed. Or, let's see, a no mercy, no respite, thin their ranks, endgame objective, and some of these fade-outs we can't see all of it. Like, if you select this objective, keep a tally of kill points each time an enemy model is destroyed. Add one to this tally, add ten to the tally instead. If it's, you know, but basically, like, you get points for doing things in-game as your secondaries that may be, that are not specific to the mission, but are more, you pick them based on what your opponent's playing. So, again, very ITC in this respect. And, like, the example, some of the examples they give are, are you running a sneaky Raven Guard army? Choose secondaries that score victory points for planting homing beacons or infiltrating the enemy's deployment zones. World Eaters focus on secondaries that reward reaping skulls for corn, not standing on objectives. This enables an overall mission that makes sense for your army's theme, but also improves balance. Not equipped to kill paladins? Choose secondaries focused on maneuver. Are the paladins yours, but frustratingly can't be out everywhere at once? Focus on destroying your opponent's army or completing a psychic ritual. And they do specify there will be faction-specific ones in the future. And then the new edition also adds actions to 40k. Traditionally, your models could either stand near objectives or shoot and punch. No longer. Now you can perform rituals, plant homing beacons, raise banners on key objectives, and more. This creates dynamic moments where you may need to decide between firing at, at the enemy or bravely, bravely accomplishing a mission. Okay, Another feature... Really cool. Yeah, and, it, and it's basically like you start this action 
And then it finishes at the end of your next command phase is like one of the examples they give. So it's like you basically give up that unit shooting. It's kind of like the engineers, Mm -hmm. you know, like the engineers secondary from ITC, but you kind of declare it when you want to do it. And and this feels more story driven and dynamic rather than engineers is just like, yeah, they're here. Yeah. Yeah, another new feature is a cap on victory points you can earn from each mission element. This makes for closer, more exciting games. In the past, a slower starting army or one without a strong alpha strike risked falling irrevocably behind their opponent. Each mission condition can only be scored up to a certain number of times, giving players the opportunity to catch up if their opponent runs out of gas after capping. This creates a wider variety of great stories, photo finishes, and viable armies. Uh, an example of one of the new Eternal War missions can be seen here, including several sneak peeks of these concepts in place. So what the, this one is the four pillars, which I believe is what was in one of the, uh, a version of this was in one of the older chapter approveds. Um, the primary objective, there are four objectives on the board. Uh, and in this mission, reinforcement units cannot be set up within range of any objective markers, so you can't just drop onto an objective. And that's another thing is, much like ITC, where the objectives are placed is fixed on the board. I like that. And they're fixed from, kind of measured from the center, and that'll be important in a bit, too. So, like, the primary objective here is take and hold. At the end of each player's command phase, the player whose turn it is scores five victory points for each of the following conditions they satisfied – uh, for a minimum of 15 victory points, they control one or more mar- objective markers. They control two or more objective markers. They control more objective markers than their opponent controls. So hold one, hold two, hold more. Sounds familiar. Mac- maximum of 15, not minimum. Minimum what? of 15 is very different. Or sorry, maximum of 15. Did I say minimum? <laughs> yeah, minimum of 15 each round is very different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, so it's a maximum of 15, sorry. Uh, this primary objective cannot be scored in the first battle round, which is also something we've seen before. And then secondary objectives in this mission, when players are selecting their secondary objectives, they can, if they wish, choose for one of them to be siphon power below. Siphon power, progressive. If you select this objective, units in your army can perform the following action. Siphon power. One or more units from your army can can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase. Each unit that starts to perform this action must be within range of a different objective marker. A unit cannot start this action while any enemy units, excluding aircraft, are in range of the same objective marker. The action is completed at the end of your next command phase, and you score a number of victory points depending on how many units completed this action this phase, as shown on the table below. So if you have, like, only one unit doing a, a siphon power action, you get a victory point. But if you have three of them, you get six. If you have four of them, so you've got, like, four units all around, like, unobjective. Well, they all have to be in range of different objective markers. So if you happen to be on all four objectives, you can score 10 victory points a turn, but because it's a secondary, it'll still cap out at 15. Mm-hmm. No, I like it. It's neat. Like it, it gives more interesting secondaries and stuff than just, you know, kill your opponent. Mm-hmm. Also, it looks like uh, deployment maps will be fixed by mission. So this mission will always have this deployment map, which uh, is also like Age of Sigmar is the same kind of way. So we're also seeing that concept brought in as well. So the only thing that's air quote random is going to be terrain. Yes. And we know that they're going to be providing guidelines on here's what a table, here's the, how the terrain, like how much terrain you should have on a table, which they haven't revealed that yet. They have specifically mentioned it, that they want to give strong guidelines on this is what a table should look like. And then points values. Finally, as a developing part of developing the new edition, points values were reviewed and have been adjusted 
up across every faction. Nice. This may sound odd at first, but it yields several benefits. First games will play faster with, generally speaking, smaller armies on either side. And they, I think they said it worked out to be like one to two fewer units on average. Um, this also makes starting a fresh army for the new edition a more accessible, quicker experience. It also means there's room for more granularity when establishing how powerful one unit or ability is compared to another. And a global points reset ensures everyone starts in the same place on day one with no established meta or best army. Here are a couple of examples so you can see what to expect. Intercessor squads up to 20 points a model from like 15, 16, 17 maybe? Uh, yeah, something. Uh, Chaos Cultists are now up to six points per model. And these are the only two examples they give. So we haven't seen like how bigger, you know, models might be affected. But the fact that they've said points cro- costs going up across the table, which is the opposite, I think, of what they've done in a long time. <laughs> Intercessors are base 17 points. Base 17. So, okay. So now they're up to 20. So yeah. And cultists you, are currently five. So so a small change, but then again, you figure the unit size is it's going to add up. But yeah, I think that's a good upgrade in the right direction, though. Yeah, I, I think rather than having some sort of race to the bottom, because that was also like they bring up the granularity issue. Like when you have cultists and guardsmen costing almost the same, it's really hard to like show the balance and power between the two because they are not the same. And also, as we've said on, on this podcast in the past, after each points drop they had, it's more units got to the table, games slowed down. Yep. Yes. And then finally, finally, new edition, new app. We knew they were releasing an app, but they, they give a couple more details that are important. On the same day that the pre-orders for this edition go live, a new app will be launched alongside it. So app will be available day zero. <laughs> Nice. Including a full matched play army builder. Oh, I, I really am looking forward to that then. The new app will do a number of things to assist players with their games, but one of the most useful will be the ability to build army lists using the updated point values and detachments. We'll have more details on the app soon, so watch this space. Only so, available for iOS and BlackBerry. Sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nokia flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> no, this sounds great. Like uh, that's That's awesome that they're putting this out so quickly. Well, yeah, and the you know the fact that it's not like oh yeah it's going to come out and then you're going to have to wait for it. It's like no, you're going to have like all the points values and all the new detachment types and new detachment rules available day like before you can even get the book. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So like, and assuming that they make the core rules free, you know, you know they they said that like the core rules will be a free download still. Theoretically, if they make those available the same day. You could get in a game and they, you know, with having like a couple of sample missions up, you could get in a game right away and kind of take the system out for a test run before you get your book. All right. So next, let's talk command points. Obviously, you know, one of the issues that in the past has been command points are not equal. Different armies have way easier time of getting some command points rather than others. Uh, which causes you to, like, if you're playing something like Custodes, Dennis, you don't get to play with your strats very much, do you? Sure I do. I pick the one that lets me get a, like, Victor of the Blood games, and then I save all the others for um, rerolls. Those are my two strats. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. 
So you don't just get more command points in the new edition. Both players also receive the same amount according to the size of the game. After all, the larger army a warlord leads, the more strategic assets will be at their disposal. So again, we listed those those points values before. Those are our break points here. Combat patrol game, which is up to 50 power level or 500 points, whichever you want to use, uh, is three command points. Incursion, uh, 51 to 100 power level, 50, you know, 501 to 1,000 points. That's six command points. Strike force is 1,000 to 2,000, and that's 12 command points. Onslaught, which is 2,000 to 3,000, or 2,001 to 3,000, that's 18 command points. Uh, with both players having the same number of command points, they will be on an even footing when it comes to the number of stratagems they can employ. So if you don't earn command points by taking additional detachments, do they still interact with each other in any way? The answer is yes. But how they do so has been turned on its head. Instead of earning you command points, each detachment you take will instead cost you command points. However, it's worth noting that the command points spent on a core detachment, patrol, battalion, or brigade, are refunded if it also includes your warlord. So your first detachment is usually free. An army drawn exclusively from the same faction and comprising a single detachment is the most strategically flexible on account of their fighting experience, fight, or their experience fighting alongside one another and therefore offers the most command points. And so they give an example of a, of a battalion detachment. It costs three command points, but if your warlord's in it, you gain three command points. So like last episode, we talked about like not having to game the system and like try to figure out how can I split this into two battalions so I can get more command points. You would absolutely not want to do that because that second one's going to cost you three now. Mm-hmm. Unless you just really wanted to use those command points to add in something you feel is necessary for your army. Exactly. But that becomes a choice you can make because yes. you think it fits rather than trying to game the system. Exactly. Which I really like this. Um, the, the guidelines for this seem about the same. A battalion is two to three HQs with two, uh, three to six troops, zero to six elites, zero three fast attack, zero three heavy support, zero to two flyers, and then dedicated transports. Now, instead of taking one for every unit, it's one for each infantry unit. So you can't spam out something by taking, like, I'm going to take a whole bunch of bikes and then a bunch of transports or something like that. The concept was heavily inspired by the narrative and enables you to manage your army selection in the manner of a real commander. You can either maximize your command points with a single detachment or choose to draw upon powerful assets and summon allies to your cause by using command points to unlock additional detachments. But there's more. Not only do you start the battle with more command points, but in each of your command phases, the new opening phase of your turn, you will receive one additional command point. So you get an additional can- – if your army's battle forged, you get an additional command point every turn. And then uh, – there are more stratagems. They said that I believe there are the core stratagems available to every army have been increased to seven. So there's more generic strats. And one of the examples they give is a strat called cut them down one command point. Uh, we've had issues with uh, armies being able to fall back freely and not have any penalty. This addresses that. Uh, Use the stratagem when an enemy unit falls back before any models in that unit are moved. Roll 1d6 for each model from your army that is within engagement range, which I guess they're finally going to specifically define engagement range. Uh, Engagement range of that enemy unit. For each result of 6, that enemy unit suffers a mortal wound. This will certainly hurt if activated on a unit of 30 orc boys. (laughs) So no longer can you just like, oh, look, I'm swarmed by a big thing. I'll step back. So, yeah, you can actually now, like, you can't stop them from falling back, but you can make it a bad idea for them, which I like that. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that we talked about 
previously about like trying to improve the game, about making it so that you had an ability to, to make people have to make the decision whether to fall back or not. And now like the, the strategy of being a generic one in everyone's back pocket, you have to think about it. And we don't know how stratagems change. Maybe there's no more limitation on being able, only able to use it once per round. Like maybe this is something that's potentially available every round, you know, every time you fall back. So it, it's really going to change how you think about moving your army and whether you want to stay locked into combat. And honestly, that's, that's really good. I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. Unless you can easily get away with like flyers don't have a penalty, then well, people will just take the one that has no penalty. Sure. So, yeah. There's sure. But even then the flyer could still get, start taking mortal wounds from this. So yeah. Yeah. As long as they're, they don't have a rule that excludes them. then I'm good. No, I don't sure, think they sure. would. I don't think they would. As much as I would love my jet bikes to fly away, it just makes sense that they would get pummeled as they f- try and get away. Right. And then finally, the last one, I think this one may be the most controversial, is uh, talking about game size. So again, you know, this week has really been focusing on you've got these four sizes of game. They've got their own de- number, their own missions available. They they determine how many command points you have. Uh, they also determine how many detachments you have. So combat patrol, you can have one detachment. Incursion, you can have two. Strike force, three. Onslaught, four. Uh, also, they did specify that kill team and apocalypse are not going anywhere. The uh, three thousand point onslaught ver- f- form of the game does not replace apocalypse. Apocalypse, it's still its own thing for doing really big battles, where three thousand points would still not be sufficient. And they also say like. Okay, so a combat patrol game should take up to an hour. An incursion should take up to two. Strike four should take up to three. So again, that the three-hour, 2,000-point game is kind of a standard now. Uh, onslaught up to four hours. And then we get to battlefield size. This has, like I said, this has been a little controversial. People are trying to figure out how to adjust to that. Players now create the battlefield and set up terrain features. Missions are played on a ra- on rectangular battlefields. The size of your battlefield depends on the battle size you have selected, as shown in the table below. These are all specifically marked as minimum sizes, but they are not what you're used to. So for combat patrol and incursion, so up to a thousand point game, 44 inches by 30 inches is your minimum. Strike force, 44 inches by 60 inches. So instead of a 48 by 72 table, you're at a 44 by 60 table. Uh, Onslaught is 44 inches by 90. And just off the top of my head, those are very weird numbers that probably need some explanation on how they came up with them. They, which they provide. Uh, of course, they are, these are only the minimum size requirements for your battlefields. So whether you're using a 6 by 4 inch or six, six by four inches, six by four foot table with a realm of battle board or linking two, four or six, 22 inch by 30 kill zone boards. So the boards that come for that use for kill team together, according to the battle size you're playing or just using a dining room table, you're good to go. In fact, most dining room tables should be able to accommodate a strike force game. So that 44 by 30 is taking two kill team play boards and putting them together. Which... I'll say, in a way, is a kind of neat way to do it because they're trying to get people into the game with Kill Team. Mm-hmm. And a Kill Team starter box has, I know it has one. Does it have two boards or just one? Um, I think it has one, but it's double-sided. Oh, cool. So, so it has one. So you got you and your buddy, you're playing Kill Team. Just get a few more models 
suddenly you can start doing the skirmish and incursion games. Yep, using so, that I mean, that second kill team board, yeah. Right. This is a good way to have a stepping stone progression for new players to get into the game. Yep, because getting a play surface is always, has actually been one of those like barriers to entry. And now they've actually got an easier way to address that. And uh, and then, of course, like the Strike Force, when, like, you get to a 2,000-point game, you're just putting four of them together because you're just doubling what you've got. And then adding a third set or, you know, another set on for Onslaught. But I do like what they said because, like, when, like, things were first mentioned to me, I was like, well, that's weird. But then if you look at the website and what they said, these are minimums, so mm-hmm. you can still use your larger realm of battle board, your larger... Um, mats all those so in essence nothing has changed they just added a new way to do this without making the old way invalid right and one of the reasons why i mentioned earlier that the missions measure their objectives from the center of the battlefield is because they're the center is always going to be there's always going to be a center of the map but rather than measuring from the edges, you're measuring from the center because that will always be the same. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, that that uh, the four pillars mission, the four pillars are always going to be placed the same way relative to the center. And that's also why they can do those measurements based on game size, which is another reason why the missions differ based on game size. Which also means that, like, for example, uh, they give a combat patrol uh of or combat patrol mission where like there's the center of the battlefield and you've got two objectives that are nine inches away on one axis and for nine inches away from the center on one axis and then 16 inches away from the center on another axis. And then your deployment zone is 12 inches from the center of the board. If you're playing on like the 44 by 30, yeah, that's, it's going to be the same. If you're playing on like a four by four mat, your deployment zones are going to be a bit bigger, but the objectives are still going to be the same place relative to where the deployment zones start. Okay, Rob, at the beginning of that, it felt like you were reading a math problem. <laughs> it, it is kind of a math problem. <laughs> it's, it's on a grid. There's an X and Y axis. <laughs> so, you know, understand basic algebra and trigonometry. Nah, but, uh, <laughs> but that also means things like Vanguard Strike, where it's like, okay, I want uh, to go from this corner diagonally across. I think that's going to be gone. But that I, I was just, our favorite type, right? Yeah, no, no, no. Until somebody f- figured out the the exact measurements on a six by four board, it was no one's favorite type. But now you can't, you won't be able to do that because that you can't base it on that. You'd have to base it off of how it relates to the center. So I think you're going to see more things like table quarters and long or short edges rather than uh, any diagonals. Also, I uh, again, Reese from Frontline Gaming has specified that all of their events, which would include Las Vegas Open and Bay Area Open, will be using these new battlefield sizes, which is interesting because I think you mentioned this before recording, Kevin, that they just released a new six foot by four foot map. Yeah, I mean they're they're still releasing products, and they mentioned that like in the in the post that Reese said, he's like, we didn't have any input on this, we didn't have. You know, we didn't have pre-knowledge of it. It was, they came to us and said, hey, we're making this change. And they're like, it sucks. We have a bunch of these old maps, but the way they made the change, we can still use the old mats. 
we can still use, you know, the existing ones that we're making. We will be making new ones for, for the specifics of this. And probably I would assume they're probably going to be more of like the kill team size that you can put multiples together. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, like it's not, I don't know. I, I struggle to see until we know everything that's coming out. I struggle to see whether this is a good or a bad change just because there's so many unknowns. And if they're making the game smaller, then you don't have to do anything. You can just tape off the extra space and do, do the measurements and stuff. You, I would have a, I would have a bigger issue if they're like, Nope, now we're playing on five by 10 boards and everything's bigger. And now you have to buy more mats because that would, you know, there's no way to adjust up, but scaling down, I'm, I'm fine with. And, and it seems like it's a kind of a general scaling down of the game. Cause we're, I mean, we're going to have slightly smaller armies on slightly smaller boards, possibly with slightly more terrain. As a, it's kind of interesting. Cause as a general rule, this has also happened in like the RPG space over the last several years where like fifth edition D and D Pathfinder 2.0, things like that have all been like, no, how can we play games in a shorter time span? How can we streamline things so that you're only playing a game for, you know, one or two hours like that, rather than, you know, the, the classic D and D thing of like, okay, we're going to meet on a Saturday. We're going to play for eight hours. You know, how do we get this done more efficiently? And I think that's a trend just across gaming in general, because video games, mobile games, other things have, have, kind of creeped into the space a little bit. So there's a more of an emphasis on how do we play smaller, more efficient games so we can get more in, or we don't have to have the big time commitment to, all right, we're going to play a game today. That's the only thing we're doing on this Saturday or this Friday night is we're getting in one game. Now we can potentially play a smaller scale, everything down, play it smaller and get two games in. So I, I like it. I like what they're doing. Yeah, and, and Kevin, that's a valid concern because I can say just from like I do MMO, I've seen over the course of the past ten years, the time commitment to do something in an MMO has drastically shrank. Mm-hmm. And then uh, even in forty forty uh, k adjacent, Rob, you said um, you kind of got into Blitz Bowl, and it's from what you said, it was much easier to get into like an hour long Blitz Bowl game than a three hour long Blood Bowl game. Yeah, it's specifically designed as kind of a an intro level faster game but yeah and i would say something like kill team would be the same kind of seem the same way as opposed to core 40k yeah but uh, at the same time also you know not only are we talking faster games but by having physically smaller games like once people start converting over to the smaller like let, let's say you start converting over to mat smaller mat sizes i don't know if we will because that's that's a lot of mats to have to rebuy but uh, those events that will will have better space usage too, because if you're saving like a foot of width per table, you're either going to have the ability to fit more people in, or you're going to finally have those that space on the table that we tend to not have, where you can you'll have room to set the unit like units that are either not yet deployed or have been destroyed. You'll have mm-hmm. just more table space in general, rather than having to kind of run everything right to the edges. Yeah, that's the thing that I'm excited about is that there's just more going to be more space on the table. So, like, even if you decide to take, you know, the existing six by four mats, you cut a foot off. Now each person has an extra six inches of space to like, you know, put extra stuff on the table. And then if you don't change the width, it's like four inches. So it's not a huge deal. You can and ever, since everything's measured in the middle, you can basically say, okay, we're going to play on a 
four by five square instead of whatever. And now there's a little more space and everything's a little closer together. Everything's yeah. I, I think, I think it's going to work out fine. And also like from a strategic point of view, that having a smaller amount of space means units are going to get in contact that much more. There's going to be less room for units to go hide on the table. Unless they hide in terrain. Right, which then makes terrain more important, which is also good. So, so so far, like, some of the changes feel like, like, at first glance, if you don't think about it, the, the change in game size. And I think that's something that had been kind of teased as a rumor ahead of time that games are going to be played on a smaller surface. Now we've seen that confirmed. And it, yeah, at first, first glance, it seems kind of like odd and out of nowhere. But then when you think about why they chose the sizes they did and some of the benefits of that, I, I feel like it's a, I feel like it's the right, the right choice. Or at least a very good choice. I mean, we'll have to actually play around with it to see, but I'm 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 positive on it. I like that they are looking at some of the core elements of the game and being willing to change it if it makes the game better. Mm-hmm. Because I think that you know they could have very easily gone and be like, no, we're locked into four by six. We've got to design everything for that. And like they were willing to look at it and say, no, what if we tweak the table size? What if we did this? And that that to me is really positive because it means that they're willing to look outside and change. They're willing to change things about the game that they don't think are working. And that will lead to a better game. If you, in the past, especially in like seventh edition, there were core parts of the game that didn't get updated. They're like, well, we don't want to change that. And I think that's why that edition suffered is that it really, they needed to kind of fully break away from some of those things and redesign the game, which they did in eighth and are further refining now with this edition. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good thing. I think that's going to lead to a better game and a better experience for everyone. Yeah. It's kind of that whole, you know, from like an authorial standpoint, kind of kill your darlings. Like don't, don't get so, or, or the, the whole idea of the, the sacred cow, like don't get enamored with an element of game design just because, well, that's the way it's always been, mm-hmm. you know, just take a look at what works, what doesn't, you know, I know there are still people who, miss armor facings and vehicles behaving differently than everything else. And while I can kind of understand that there are some things that are felt like you, you kind of lose some of that extra granularity from that. I, I don't think it's necessarily bad that that is gone in this case, because y- you actually get a smoother, more consistent game out of it with less weird fiddly space. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's our that's news and new releases. Uh, hopefully, in the next episode, we'll just they're going to keep the uh, the ninth information train going. I imagine uh, we'll have probably more. Hopefully, on things like terrain or some, like maybe the like some of the hinted at changes to the morale phase or or other core game changes. But uh, yeah, I, I imagine that uh, other than you know the next psychic awakening book, those are going to be the things that we're going to be mostly looking forward to. So with that, we'll transition over to your listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listener, and uh, we will tell you how you can get your letter read on the air uh, at the end of the segment. Um, We've got two letters this time. Uh, One is quite long, so we've got a lot to talk about. So, Uh, and it's from a repeat writer, Clay Sedrith. Clay writes once again, Greetings, prefren- prefrenemies. 
Yes, it's another letter from Clay Sudrith, now with 100% less cow puns. Just for you, Kevin. Just for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give my own take on some baseless speculation for the future of the game. I had a ton of thoughts about Ninth Edition, but now that we have so much info, I can condense them down to a few shorter thoughts. Terrain updates. About damn time. I hope we have a match play terrain chart where... TOs can just say which each piece counts as and then give us fun and crazy options beyond that to use outside tournaments. I've heard power level will be updated. I hope this is true to support more casual play and to support my biggest wishlist item, narrative-only rules. Release a special character with rules designed for fluff first, only cost them in PL, and for match play they count as a generic character with specific equipment. Naturally, this won't apply to characters we already know. I feel it would work well to introduce new characters, especially ones tied to a specific story arc. It would let them make fun and interesting characters, test certain rules, mechanics, and possibly give them a match play approved points value down the line. Imagine how much better the tournament scene would have been after the space marine supplements if fire and father ferris had been a beta test okay i'm going to pause there on the letter and i don't know how i feel about this idea yeah it's interesting because like the the one i kind of think of is the uh the special care the the like special store opening characters or the black library mini so if they had released eisenhorn for example and been like, here's Eisenhorn. He is PL 15 or whatever. I, I don't know. Uh, he has no points. He can only be used narratively. And if you use him narrative in a, you know, but he also has the same equipment as a generic inquisitor. Fine. Like they could, it's just kind of like what, like Severina Rain to a degree is a little bit. It's like you could use her as a commissar or as the name character. I, I don't, the only downside of that is I don't really know what the target audience for that is. Like there's, I don't think there's a lot of people that are only interested in playing narrative events or using PL. I think people want to use both. And I don't know. I, I don't know that like using, putting Iron Father Pharos out as a, as a PL narrative only model would have helped beta test it because you still then have to put points in it and you still have to have it work with the rest of a competitive army, you know, and if iron father first, exactly the same rules he has right now, if you point him at 90 points or you point him at 250 makes a huge difference with the exact same abilities. So it's like, I don't know that that necessarily helps beta test. Yeah. And I, I have a feeling that it would be, It'd be hard for somebody who like, okay, so let's say you have somebody who plays both narrative and, you know, enjoys playing narrative, but also wants to go to a GT and they've painted up this model really nicely and it's their favorite character. And then being told, well, yeah, you can use them, but the rules are going to be different than what you're used to using them as. You have to use them as Mm -hmm. this generic version and that's going to screw with you because all game you're going to be trying to, your brain's going to think of him as, well, I'm going to use them as the narrative rules. No, that doesn't work. I mean, yeah. it's like having two versions of like the, like the runesmith or the rune or the iron, no, two versions of the iron priest mm-hmm. from like hey, space both wolves. Were valid. Equally valid. <laughs> yes. That, that's, that's the problem with that one. Yeah. It's like it, it, that's just, I, I, my concern would be that it just creates confusion. Oh, so I, I guess the one thing that I'll say about that, that maybe it's still, there's still going to be this issue potentially with the crusade system and like the ability to 
take your characters and kind of customize them over time, like maybe that's what will will scratch that itch where it's, you know, I can take generic commissar and over the course of battles, give him upgrades. And then by the end of the campaign, now he's uber commissar that can do all these great things. You're still going to have to remember that when you go play in a matched game that no, he's just regular, you know, regular generic commissar. But I, I don't know. Like it's, we haven't seen enough of the crusade system to really be able to say what it's, what it's going to be and how it's going to work. But I, I hope that that can scratch the itch of what you're looking for. And, you know, and then when they release characters, and they release new models, they could just release rules for both. Yeah. So. And, and I do like that. They, they did clarify, they did do a post on crusade, which I still don't think gave enough information to get a good feel for it yet. Mm-hmm. But they did at least clarify, and it was something you had brought up last episode, Dennis, that the idea that you can be playing your crusade campaign and take that army to like a tournament. And even if your opponent is not a crusade player, as long as they're fine with you using the crusade rules on the mission, then you can put that, like the experience that you earn in that game towards your crusade army. So you could have both. I mean, there's no reason to not provide both there. Yeah. All right, so next, moving on to the rest of his letter. And now to move into the land of wild speculation. Take everything I say here as the fevered ravings of a couple of fans, but I think Jake, my roommate, and I have a good theory. Feel free to paraphrase if this is too long-winded. Jake and I agree that the Imperium Civil War would be fascinating. We have a different take on why and how it could start. Allow me to weave a tale. The Emperor has left the Golden Throne, ascended into a new stage of godhood, and still the Imperium fights in his name. Times are bleak, with travel harder than ever before and the growing Necron threat. Even Gilliman finds himself wondering how the, Imper- the Imperium will survive, and suggests some radical changes that would bring back bring things back to his father's original vision. Meanwhile, an Inquisitor suspects a chapter of Astartes to have gone rogue, or worse, turned to chaos. They rejected the Primaris Marines, not even making contact with Gilliman's Indomitus Crusade. Nothing shall stop the Inquisition from its duty. Something shall be done about their disloyalty. The Inquisitor sets out with Marines from the Minotaur's chapter and the Sisters from several orders, ready to destroy the chapter if needed. They return with revelations. One of the Emperor's Lost Sons is back, leading a chapter of Astartes that bear the word of the Emperor, and he brings damning news. Gilliman is a heretic, and Lorgar is here with the proof. Instead of making the conflict old versus new, make it dogma of the past versus reason of the imperial truth. Gilliman will want to push the Imperium back to the Emperor's actual vision. This will upset the Ecclesiarchy, threaten the High Lords, and probably a good portion of the Inquisition. Lorgar will show up and tell all these groups, no, you're actually right, Gilliman just wants the Imperium to himself. He tried it once before. Uh, referencing the Imperium Secundus, which was a thing back in the Horus Heresy. He can also paint Call and all of his work, specifically the Primaris Marines and all the new tech, as heresy, as Call is one of the few alive long enough to be able to back up Gilliman on the Emperor's actual vision. All this new tech is not Omnisire Emperor approved, therefore it is heresy. The chapters of Marines suspicious of Primaris will feel justified. Enough of the High Lords of Terror resent Gilliman's power to go along with this. They also would be more comfortable with return to the known status quo over all these new changes, they only have the word of one Primarch as to what needs to be done. What's Lorgar's motivations? Well, twofold. First, with the Emperor ascended, he's been proven right. Vindicated after 10,000 years. Does that bring him back to the Imperium? Or is he just back to sow discord and help mankind tear itself apart? Second, he's got a grudge to settle with Gullman. Turning mankind into what the Emperor wanted to prevent, and then turning it against the Ultramarines would be sweet revenge. But through his actions, he would he needs to seem sincere in his worship of the Emperor and his dedication to the version of humanity that he, Lorgar, wants. GW would not ha- 
would have to not let any writers give us his point of view because this would be most interesting if they kept us guessing. Is he trying to save humanity in his own way, brought back by faith, brought back to faith by the Emperor's ascension, or is this all a massive plan for revenge, ending with Lorgar standing in the ashes of Ultramar, scolding Gilliman as was done to him so long ago? Jake would like to add that the Imperial Creed, everything the Ecclesiarchy is founded on, was taught to them by a surviving ward bearer that had repented after the destruction of Monarchia. Gilliman forgave him and guaranteed his protection in secret, as was done with many of the survivors from heretic legions that individually stayed loyal. This word bearer, interred in an ancient contemptor dread, tells us that to a premier, tells this to a premier's captain in the novel Apocalypse. That's a very key bit of lore to be hard confirmed. This would give us another Primarch back, and I would love to see the Lorgar model. He'd lo- have to look uncorrupted, but the stories around it can hint that it might not be Lorgar or that it's not his actual body. Goleman never gets to meet him face to face, but make sure that it's always by circumstance, never by anyone's design. The more GW can make Lorgar seem sincere, the more divisive it will be, and we all know Warhammer is a setting where you're never quite sure who the good guys are, really are. And where are the custodes in all this? It's been suggested that the Golden Throne... F- should the Golden Throne fail, a warp rift will open on Terra, the result of his unfinished webway project. The Custodes and Grey Knights are too busy desperately fighting a demon invasion off inside the very Imperial Palace to stop any of this. They run the High Lords out of the palace, but can't spare the manpower to do anything else. They may not even know what's going on. Naturally, this would represent a huge shift in the game's factions, breaking the, quote, all Imperium works together, unquote, we've had since the start of 8th. So this is a shift worthy of a new edition. I stay wait until 10th or even 11th edition to kick all this off. You could have a story arc setting this up about the Emperor ascending the warp, with the warp Rift opening and the palace under siege from within is the big arc to close out the edition, much like what was done with the Gathering Storm. It would lend well to Custodes versus Demon's special box set as well. So what do you think about all this? Would you enjoy returned seemingly loyal again Lorgar? Is this more or less likely than your ideas for a civil war? As always, I look. thank you for all the work you put in, keep the content rolling, and thank you for reading my wild ramblings. I look forward to everything that we'll be theory crafting and discussing about Ninth until we actually get the books. Take care, stay safe. Clay Sedrith, Master of the Raging Panthers, High Mind of High Fleet Lazarus. That is a neat idea. The idea. I'm just not sure of it based on the trailer we've seen. Oh no, and I don't oh, think yeah. he's. No, I, I think he's not. specifically saying that like this would not be what's going on right now. More, this would be something way down the road. Build through in okay, because I know I was talking about the ecclesiarchy and the space marines having a rift to start ninth ed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a neat idea. There's a couple of there's a couple of things that I would probably change with it a little bit. So, first off, Lorgar has ascended to demonhood and is a demon prince now, so it's going to be really hard for him to show up uncorrupted. And the word bearers have pretty clearly cast their lot against the empire, the empire, you know, the Imperium, and uh, and with chaos. So, I think uh, what could work as well would be having, say, I don't know, like Alpharius show up with like a group of Alpha Legion going, "Hey, we were loyal the whole time." This is actually what's going on. And I think that by the, like, just the nature of the subterfuge of Alpha Legion would probably make that storyline a little more believable because there's a lot more gray area with Alpha Legion than there is with, like, the word bearers, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, like, you know, Goleman is not necessarily like he's not a fan of the Ecclesiarchy, but in um, the Dark, the book Dark Imperium, he like he actually brings like he's actually got a member of the ecclesiarchy like with him as as an advisor 
and it, it kind of they kind of come to uh, a detente of sorts where like the the member of the ecclesiarch he kind of re- you know he recognized like yeah Gulliman's you know he's like yeah you don't believe any of this but at the same time Gulliman realizes that the value that this has had you know even though there's a lot of bad things the the ecclesiarchy has done or a lot of damage it's done to the original imperial truth it is also something that has helped sustain humanity for the 10,000 years that he's been gone so it's like he appreciates the value and he also can't deny that there are actually like miracles that have been happening so mm-hmm. i've and i've thought for a long time that it is very funny that lorgar has has been proven to be right the whole time <laughs> yeah i mean it it makes like if you go back and read the first heretic by Aaron Dembski Bowden, which basically covers the destruction of Monarchia and the turn of Lorgar away from an emperor who does not want to be worshipped to the forces of chaos, which absolutely want to be adored. Um, yeah, that's I, that kind of sets the scene for his turn. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. Like he has fully thrown in his lot with chaos, and even in the Psychic Awakening books, you know the word bears. They want to corrupt the ecclesiarchy because to them it, it it's like the greatest irony. Mm-hmm. It would be really hard for them, like especially since Lorgar is a known demon prince and is you know, and the entire word bearers have been you know declared traitorous tra- exterminatus. It's like it would be really hard to pull off the idea of sisters of battle coming across Lorgar and like falling in with him. Yeah. Now, so. like, there's there's ways that you could potentially pull character. Like, I I don't remember the character's name, but I remember there was a word bearer from like the Horus Heresy that I think has a Forge World model that's like very you know was loyal and didn't turn and stuff like that. So you could potentially do something where it's like you bring that character back and like, Oh no, I've been in stasis for 10,000 years and I have the truth. And these are the loyal word bearers and you could do potentially something like that, but it's, it's hard to have Lorgar be kind of the, the instigator just with the situation that he's in right now. Oh yeah. Agreed. It's now, if you, if you brought in one of the missing two, that would be interesting. Yes. I don't think they're going to do that because I don't think they're going to, but that no, would be very interesting. I mean, they yeah. pretty much stated they never would, but. But that would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, and they've mentioned in like some of the horse heresy storylines that like, oh yeah, those two, we don't like, those were destroyed well before like the great crusade was even fully underway. It's like they, they did something very wrong and were purged and any survivors already folded into other legions. So, so, like, it's theoretically, I mean, it's an interesting concept for a storyline. It's not one I necessarily, I, I, I would, I'm going to say up front, I don't see this happening. I, I think there's, there's too many fundamental things and there would be too much ingrained distrust of, of Lorgar for the, for any faction of the Imperium to, to join in with them. Yeah. But, uh. But I think the idea of the idea of there being like older older factions or older groups that come back and say, 
wait, no, we don't trust this. You know, we don't trust what's going on. You know, I, I think there's several built in ways of doing that. I mean, Luther is running around loose. Right. Cypher is still running around loose. You've got Alpharius potentially out there. Alpha Legion's, you know, what case is very gray as to whether they're on the side or not. You've got the lion, uh, not the lion, uh, Lehman Russ, that's out there in the warp somewhere. Maybe he shows back up and is like, uh, hey, Gilliman, I remember when you didn't help us during the Horse Heresy, you must be a traitor. Boom, okay, there's your split. There's a number of ways to do this basic storyline. So, and, and I think that storyline is very interesting. I think the, I think the specifics about it being the word bearers is where I run into some story blocks. But I yeah. think the the base idea is very good, and frankly, I kind of hope it's something they do at some point because I think it'd be very interesting. It would definitely shift shift up the meta and, sh- and change the game. So I'm and, all for and- that. And to go with something you said earlier, Dennis, based on the trailer, I don't think there's any distrust between the Primaris and the Sisters of Battle. No, no, <laughs> none at all. But, you know, Call has been like, Call's a very divisive fi- figure, even inside the lore. So I could definitely see distrust towards the Mechanicus or Call in general being a cause of a rift. And the idea of the the old Imperial truth versus the new Imperial dogma also, like, I could see that causing an eventual rift of some sort, but the storyline so far has seemed to be more along the lines of mending that rather than exacerbating it, so. But, you know, Clay, it's it's an interesting concept, and I think, and I think we're all here in, like, all in agreement, like, there are elements of that we could, we would definitely like to see, just, I don't know about this particular permutation of it. All right, and then our second letter is from uh, Patrick uh, Blazjewicz. I'm going to hope I didn't mangle that name. And he says, Hello, preferred enemies. First off, I would like to thank you for introducing me to The Expanse. It has been a great distraction during self-isolation. Now to the question at hand. In your last episode, you mentioned that the hopper was empty again, so I thought I would get your opinions on a Sisters of Battle list. I know with Ninth Edition being right around the corner, things will be changing, but this is something I've been theorycrafting for quite some time. My local meta has a competitive group of players with a large mix of armies within it. I was trying to create a list that was balanced between melee and shooting, but I was worried that in the process I have spread them too thin. I split the army into two parts, and in the first portion, I have a Valorous Heart Battalion. I'm running Celestine. As you know, she can be quite tough, but I am running her without her bodyguards as, an, as per another player's recommendation. Not sure if that's the court, if it is the correct choice or not. A Canonist with the Relic Blade of Admonition. This is just in case she needs to get into combat, but her main job will be... Uh, be to be with the three exorcists for rerolls. It also includes six five-woman battle sister squads of two storm bolters per unit, which is nothing out of the ordinary. Lastly, I have added an Imagifier who will be using the heroine in the making for minus one CP to give her the relic Book of St. Lucius to extend her uh, Tale of the Stoic Aura. This is half of my army's... The ha- this half of my army's job is to sit on objectives and put some firepower down where needed. The second half is a bloody road... Vi- uh, the second half is a Bloody Rose Vanguard detachment. This half has a cannonist with the Relic Blade Beneficence, which can make her deadly in combat, a missionary for the extra attack, a repentant superior to buff those ladies, and another Magifier with Tale of the Warrior. Three units of Repentia, one at nine, which will start on the board, and the other two at eight, which will both start in a rhino and be accompanied by the characters above. I've included an Inquisitor to turn off Overwatch and to be a beat stick himself with a Stormbolter and a Thunderhammer. 
Two mortifiers which act as a distraction so the Repentia rhinos are not targeted, but also get into combat if they are ignored. Lastly, I have included one one squad of Seraphim with eight sisters. Two of them will have double Inferno pistols. The Seraphim could deep strike if I need some support on the other end of the board, or I could start them near Celestine if she needs the support. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions, and I am open to changing any part of this list. Thanks again. Stay safe, Patrick. So here's the list, and there's a couple of things I do want to note. There are errors with how he put the list together. So there's a couple of errors with how, how he mentioned that. In Heroin in the Making gives somebody the ability to take a Warlord trait, not an additional relic. That would be the uh, open the reliquaries. He also has, he didn't take, he needed to take open the reliquaries twice or take it for two CP to get the two additional relics. Uh, so he could have both the Blade of Admonition and the Book of St. Lucius and Beneficence. So just get that out of the way. Those are just minor corrections. The points all still work out. It's just he's going to end up with one fewer command point than he would otherwise. So the list is the following. An order, uh, a Valorous Heart uh, Battalion with a Canonist with the Blessed Blade and Blade of Admonition and the Warlord Trait Impervious to, Dan- or Impervious to Pain. Celestine by her Lonesome. As he said, six battle sister squads, uh, all with five sisters, two of which with storm bolters, chain swords on the sister superiors, and magic fire with the book of St. Lucius and tale of the stoic, three exorcists with, uh, the exorcist missile launcher, and then the, uh, bloody rose vanguard detachment, an inquisitor with terrify as his psychic power. He's ordo malleus. He is a psyker. He has, uh, a storm bolter and a thunder hammer. Uh, and then he also has the legendary fighter warlord trait. Uh, the one repentia superior, the canonist, uh, which I've given a heroine in the making. She's got an inferno pistol and the beneficence chain sword, a missionary with a bolt pistol and shotgun, another imagifier with tail of the warrior, which is a six inch bubble of plus one strength. And then, as you mentioned, a unit of nine sisters repentia and two units of eight. And then, the unit of Seraphim with two with dual Inferno pistols, a unit of Mortifiers with one Anchorite, which is the better armor, and, and then one Mortifier, and they're both dual Heavy Bolter, dual Penitent Flails, and then two Sororitas Rhinos. And the first thing I will say about this list is I don't think you need the like the unit of Repentia just on foot is not going to matter unless it is just there to draw fire for a turn because it's not those, those sisters will not survive getting where they need to go. They, you know, they have like no appreciable armor save because they've got a seven up save and a six up invuln. They're tough three, one wound, those nine, they will die before they get anywhere. Yeah. And also, only having one Repentia Superior is not, like, unless you position those rhinos right next to each other and pop out at the same time, you're not going to get the benefit for both of them. Yeah, if you were running, if your plan was to run, like, two units on foot, and then have kind of the Sister Repentia kind of in the middle, or the Mistress of Repentance in the middle, that would work better. But you still run into the same problem of, you know, uh, 17 models with no armor save running across the board get shot up just as quickly as nine. Right. Now, I did take the inquisitorial mandate uh, strat to have the warlord trait on the uh, the inquisitor. Yeah, oh, legendary, so took fighter, yeah. legendary fighter. So like one of the generic ones. 
Yeah. So three units of Repentia and a unit of Mortifiers and a unit of Seraphim. One guy turning off Overwatch for one unit is not going to be enough. Like, I, I really don't see any huge benefit from running the Inquisitor. I mean, he's he's 73 points. You've loaded him up for close combat, and I'm assuming he's riding in one of the rhinos, but I just... I don't know if he brings enough to the table to... I mean, a Thunderhammer's nice. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just don't know if he brings enough to the table to to really justify the expense, both for command points and. Uh, I mean, the one and, thing I will say is that you know the ability to to sprinkle in a psyker is nice, mm-hmm. and you know, so like it's not, it's not terrible. It's not a terrible choice. It is. It's a little bit of a point sink that I think you could probably spin better other places. So for example, you could, if you drop the inquisitor and drop like the unit of nine Repentia, that should be enough to get you like a unit of uh, Zephram, which will do the same thing at, you know, and be good melee, a good melee unit that's faster and more durable. And I think that would probably be a better choice. So that's, yeah, that's definitely one way you can go. Uh, something I was looking at was I kind of went in the other direction. Um, so I dropped the, because, because one of the things I noticed, like, okay, so th- I like three units of Repentia, but I don't like having one of them outside of its box to start yeah. with. So I looked at how can I fit in a third Rhino and also how can I fit in two more sisters repentia or two more uh repentia superiors because i want those with each of those units so i can send them in different directions because mm-hmm. like you put one so like you put one unit so like make them all eight sister units and then one rhino has a repentia superior and the canonist the second one has the repentia superior and the missionary one of them has a repentia superior and an imagifier all three of those are good they're all going to do slightly different things with the same units so i ended up um i uh, for one thing i dropped the uh i dropped the uh inquisitor i uh, you know i cut down one of the sisters repentia to eight and i ended up uh dropping one of the six squads of battle sisters i think five will do just fine mm-hmm. i also shed a couple of points here and there like the canonist that's supposed to be hanging out with the uh, with the exorcist, I dropped the blessed blade from her, which you need to get the blade of admonition, because if she's not meant to get in close combat, there is no reason for me to spend the points to equip her for that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I'd much rather be so, but I did give her a plasma pistol, which is a little bit cheaper, and that gives her a shooting option. And again, it's only a 12-inch shooting option, but she can pretty much safely overcharge it because she's rerolling all ones. Uh, I gave her the Book of St. Lucius so that she's got a larger bubble so that that gives a little bit more freedom in how I can place those exorcists so I don't have to have them huddled exactly on her. But then I... And I'm assuming that the tale of the Stoic Imagifier there is supposed to be with the exorcists as well. So, I mean, you can still have them all kind of, you can still have them clustered up together, but it also gives her a little bit more freedom to kind of move around the board a bit 
and provide those rerolls, maybe stretch that over to like a nearby unit of Battle Sisters as well. But uh, I mean, otherwise, the the list is is a pretty solid traditional sisters list of a Valorous Heart detachment and a Bloody Rose detachment. So there's not a ton that really I would change. And, yeah, I think, and, the, I think the basic concept's pretty good. Like it's mm-hmm. you know because you know it 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 does the goals that he has of trying to kind of balance shooting and the you know melee threats. I think it just, I think, yeah, I think there's just a few pieces that don't quite, or aren't quite as good as they, as they could be. And I think there's probably better ways to take them. Right. So I'm going to play around with uh, your suggestion. I can drop one of the repentant superiors. And then you said a unit of Zephyrim. Yeah. So let's see here. Can't drop the Inquisitor. Um, drop the because, because honestly, like I really like the Zephyrim units. I, I think the models are great, but I also think that they they provide a really unique uh, attack, you know, attack option. So yeah, if you were to drop the nine sister Repentia squad and the Inquisitor, and at uh, what is that? Did I do that right? Because it seems like I'm still missing points. Yeah, you're still down by about like sixty eight points. Oh, okay. But, but then if I oh, wait, but then if I add in one of the, I since yeah. I took out one of the battle sisters, so yeah, if I add in, yeah, you're still I, down I, about 19 points. So well, okay. I'm, so I, I, well, I, I made a mistake on my side because I didn't drop one of the units because I basically was, I selected it wrong. So I'm like, how does that come out to two, only two points? Uh, okay, so if you add the Zephyrum, you add the Zephyrum squad in, you want to give the Zephyrum squad the pennant. Yes. Um. And then you could potentially make that a larger squad. So, yeah, I, I may, yeah. so so I put back the sixth unit of sis, battle sisters, and mm-hmm. I took out the one extra repentant superior and the one extra rhino, and that gave me enough points. Like, yeah, I was able to do a nine nine sister Zephyrim squad with the uh, pennant. And yeah, that comes which, in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. So like that that's another option if you want to go that route, and that gives you. Another unit that can zip around the board, um, you know, power swords and are really good, you know, uh, so that gives you the ability to take out power armor. They can move around with Celestine if you decide that you want to do that with them. They can operate kind of independently. Um, that's the nice thing is that they don't really need another unit to kind of like hang out with them from a support perspective. They can just go out and do their own thing and operate a little more uh, independently than than the potential like then potentially having to throw a lot of support options behind your sister's apentia. Mm-hmm. Or if you decide to go with a seven unit or seven model unit of Zephyrim, you do have the points to throw the Gemini back in and give Celestine yes. her bodyguards. Yeah. Cause I, I do like her bodyguards. They are they are you know, I, I can understand people saying ah you don't need to take them because they, you know from points perspective, but if you can have them it's another it's another unit that can go out and run around the board, you know, can, can keep Celestine a little alive, a little bit longer, make her more effective. Uh, and honestly, just kind of frustrate your opponent because they, they keep coming back. <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean that, and then at that point, you know, like you could, you actually do have the points. If you drop the plasma pistol, you could switch back to the blessed blade. And that comes in at 2000 on the dot. So, and again, it's like the list isn't fundamentally changed other than like dropping the inquisitor 
Mm-hmm. But you end up with like you end up with at seven CP available instead of six, which again this is that would be very different in ninth edition. You'd have way more CP available, but you also would well you might not have way more because you'd be spending some on the uh, Vanguard detachment. But, True. Uh, which we don't know exactly how much those are going to cost yet. But otherwise, I mean it's it's a it's a solid list. You've got plenty of units to hold objectives. You've got some good shooting with the uh, good resilient shooting with the exorcists. And then yeah, you've got some very solid uh uh assault units. But yeah, I would much rather run a unit of Zephyrum than a unit of uh, Zephyrum on foot or that I can deep strike in rather than a unit of Verpentia on foot. Yeah. And and like I said, making sure that I've got that second sister Repentia or Repentia Superior to put in a rhino as well. So both of those units are going to be eff- equally effective. So yeah, it, it the list doesn't need much in the way of fundamental... The list doesn't need much in the way of fundamental changes. It is, it is good at with a, a couple of slight tweaks. So you could, like I said, you can go either three rhinos full of Repentia and you can definitely fit those points in, or you can go with a unit of Zephyrim instead, which I mean, that's going to be fantastic. And, uh, you know, bloody rose Zephyrim are deadly mm-hmm. and still having the, the points available for the, the Gemini. It's like, I mean, running the Gemini isn't as important because Celestine isn't the warlord in this list, which does mean you don't get the benefit of her ex- getting, getting you extra miracle dice, which that's, a little, you know, that that's not ideal, but at the same time, she is such a big target that she, that she is uh, a big target. Although from the sound of the mission design, ninth edition may not have slay the warlord. I didn't oh, see anything mentioned about that. Like, hmm. I don't know, maybe tertiaries will still be a thing, but if you don't get extra points for slaying the warlord, then running her as the warlord is, is not the worst thing ever. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Now that, now that you mentioned that with the, the mission design stuff, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, not seeing that stuff. I kind of like the I, – I hope that is actually the case because while Slay the Warlord is has been kind of a thing for a few editions now, I kind of like the idea of not feeling like my – like I'm penalizing myself by both having a Warlord that has a cool ability and not being afraid to use them in combat. Yeah. So, Or do you think they'll have something that makes the Warlord your like – Highest point HQ? No, no, I, I don't think uh, I, I don't think they'll have that. I just think that there it won't be worth any extra. It won't be worth mission points. Right, but I was just saying. Then flavor wise, would would it be that way? Because I know one edition Asherman, if he was your in your army, he had to be the warlord. Right. No, well, I don't I think another edition when the Avatar had to be the warlord if he was in the army. They mentioned the um, the ability to. Uh, specifically like if your warlord's in this detachment then that detachment's free so i think that you're still going to be flexible on who who can be your warlord i don't think they're gonna i think that's part of what they're designing as well and based on that i i think they would still want to give your opponent a bonus for taking out said warlord because that is supposedly the the key to your army in a Mm -hmm. way yeah so yeah we don't we don't know yet we just it it's one of those things like we haven't seen it mentioned at all so it could be part of it. It might not be. So Another I would kind of still spitballing. Yeah. I would kind <laughs> of like it to not be, or maybe it becomes like a secondary that you take. Like you get 15 points if you can kill your opponent's warlord, at which point that is going, that then changes how your opponent plays. 
Or, yeah, or it could be something like the old school secondary, which, you know, on ITC, where it's, you get your secondaries become what, what used to be the tertiaries of, you know, slay the warlord for five points, line breaker for five points, and, you know, a version of first blood or something. I don't know. I, I could see something like that working and being one of the options. Mm-hmm. But as things stand right now, I can understand not wanting to have Celestine both in an active combat role and as your warlord. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I I wouldn't necessarily change that for this for this particular list. So, Patrick, hopefully, they get kind of gives you an idea. I think, yeah, we think you're on the right track. Just make sure you've got your uh, which strats do what right as far as like your pregame strats, and then maybe look at replacing the Repentia or finding a different way to use them that that foot unit of Repentia. And also, I see what you're doing with the Inquisitor. I, I don't know if I would go that route. And that is actually our last letter in the hopper. So uh, if you want to get a letter in to be read, now is the time. And there are three, three good ways to get your letter read on the air. First is email us. Our email addresses are our first names at preferredenemies.com. So that is Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Second is our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. You can like us there, follow us, and we post news, updates, things we're working on, episode updates, etc. And third is on Twitter. We are at twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular. Uh, we take letters from all those spots, collate them together and uh, put them together, throw them in the hopper and then try to get through as many letters as we can in a decent amount of time. Uh, so yeah, so that is empty. So get those letters in now and you can get them on the next episode. Um, we also do have a Patreon if you want to support the show. However, right now, there are a lot more charities that you can be donating to. So uh, whether it is a, uh, a justice charity or bail fund or uh, a charity to help people in your area who may still be recovering from the economic disruption caused by coronavirus, whether it's a food bank or an unemployment fund or even just spending some of that money uh getting like takeout from a local restaurant because you know they you know maybe they they are they might be open but most of these places are at reduced capacity which might not be enough to make rent in many cases there's a lot of places you can put that money so we strongly recommend supporting your local charities and businesses first rather than supporting us we're doing fine we have funding for days so we are good to go So we're going to take a break for sponsor identification, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the brand new Psychic Awakening book, Engine War. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Care Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. 
Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a game mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, but first... Yeah, once again, we have a second news and new releases section because we're recording on Sunday, and Sunday is where uh, the upcoming Sunday preview hits, and it tends to hit right where in the middle of our recording time now. So, coming up for pre-order next week, so probably by the time you hear this episode, this will be, it'll be going up for pre-order either that day or in a day or so. Uh, the, uh, the Zote box for Blackstone Fortress is going up for pre-order, so you'll be able to or- get the Zote. The big fatty Zote. Like it. <laughs> and then, uh, the next Psychic Awakening book, <laughs> War of the Spider, is going up for pre-order. So now we are now two weeks apart on, uh, Psychic Awakenings. And if they had more Psychic Awakenings, we could eventually get to, like, uh, a Pacific Rim level? case. <laughs> where we you know eventually we get a double event but no we won't get a double event but they are they have i have a feeling they've accelerated the release rate for these to catch up for the time that was lost due to the uh, covid lockdown absolutely yep yeah so it makes me wonder how quickly they're going to put pariah out and then get on to the next edition like i was think we were thinking i think you know august september but like maybe it's going to be end of you know july sometime like I don't know. It'll be interesting. Yeah, and maybe by then we'll actually, you know, people will actually be able to play, which would yeah. be good for a new edition. It'll help adoption, definitely. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, and so along with the War of the Spider book, which they're going to be giving uh, rules previews of next week, um, we are getting the new Fabius Bile. Yes. Never heard of him. Fabius Bile returns with an awesome model, which is every inch true to the iconic clone lord, and he's not alone. He is accompanied by his surgeon, Acolyte, a twisted creation which helps him with his experiments. The pair are an excellent addition to a Chaos Space Marine army as they can improve their fellow heretics in battle. They also make for a great uh, painting or modeling project. And they had a footnote on that. We can't wait to see what dioramas you come up with using these new models. And uh, they they also go on to say how he's uh, returning to the ruins of Cadia, haunted by the Death Guard and Imperial agents. This would be too much for many people, but don't they don't call him the Spider for nothing, so we'll see who's actually falling into whose trap. The book has rules for the Death Guard, Adeptus Custodes, Sisters of Silence, Imperial Assassins, and Creations of Bile, new way of playing Chaos Space Marines. So they'll be revealing rule, rules throughout the week. And they do also mention it's a good job he's got that coat made of skin on. We've heard that Cadia can be chilly this time of year, floating through the void of space in pieces. Wait, what happened to Cadia? Don't don't worry yourself about it, Kevin. They're fine. I promise you, oh, they're, they're fine. fine. Okay, good, good. Because I was fine. worried there for a second. As long as they're fine. 
<laughs> oh, and one other one other bit of there's a new Fabius Wild uh, novel coming out. But the other highlight is uh, it's going to be another full week here at the Warhammer Community website as we look ahead to the new edition of Warhammer 40K. We will be taking a closer look at vehicles, monstrous creatures, blast weapons, and terrain next week. So that'll be cool to see. What, blast the, weapons remove terrain? N- no, I doubt that, no. <laughs> and then on Saturday, uh, on next Saturday, you'll be able to catch the next Warhammer preview online. Last month, we revealed the new edition of Warhammer 40K. This time, we have something else amazing for you, the upcoming box set. We'll be lifting the lid and showing off the awesome models and more that that the launch box contains. So make sure you join us from 2 p.m. We think this is the best Warhammer 40,000 box set that we've ever made, so don't miss it. That's that's a hard claim. That's a hard claim because Blackreach is a thing that existed. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, if they were to release this one for like the $85 price point, as Black oh, then, Reach, yeah, this down. might, yeah. then this no, might Black be Reach Black Reach. Black Reach was 60 but... when they dropped it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, <laughs> but, but a price increase to 80 would not be... Like, make it the cost yeah. of the start collecting box? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give them that. Like, they can increase that. It's going to be probably 200, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah. No, no less than 170. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to be... I mean, it, depending on how many models are in there. It, now, it is possible they could price it very aggressively. That it is... It's a thing that could be true, but like I would hold, hold my breath. The Dark Imperium box for like one sixty was still a really good value. Like you got a lot out of it. So I'm yeah. the start. The starting boxes are usually usually good values. And who knows? Maybe it'll come with a realm, not a realm of battle board, uh, a kill team board or two. Maybe I'm I I would not be surprised if it came out with a combat patrol size or like that forty four by thirty board. That would be cool. And if they double sided it to, because every every kill zone, kill team kill zone board is double sided, and the double, the other side is always like the generic uh, like city, like the sector Imperium map. So if they do this double sided, so like one side it's like whatever Space Marines versus Necron specific table they want to have, and then the other side matches those, that would be perfect. And maybe they can bring back those red rods. No, no, no whippy sticks. We don't need whippy <laughs> sticks. <laughs> oh my gosh, those are so bad. Besides the fact that people learned to how to like warm them up so they could stretch them slightly <laughs> because people are just jerks sometimes. Yeah. All right. So, so anyway, uh, some uh, big stuff coming next week. So we'll have that to talk about on our next episode as well. So, anyway, moving on to the currently out Psychic Awakening book, uh, Psychic Awakening Engine Wars. So, this one is um, – so, so they, they've pitched it as uh, Mechanicum and Imperial Knights versus uh, Chaos Knights and Demons. Fluff-wise, that's a little bit of a misnomer. That it's basically like it starts out talking about how the uh, Mechanicus is sending out these reclamation fleets, you know, with everything going on to try to make sure they don't lose access to any technologies. So they're like visiting all these worlds that are aligned with the Mechanicus and just kind of reinforcing them and making sure that they've got firm control on it because losing anything would be heresy to them. And it focuses on the fleet of one particular Dominus. No, uh, Dominus Kroll, uh, Ma- Ma- or Dominus Magos Zoo Kroll. They are, and he's accompanied by a bunch of Imperial Knights. Like their fleet, it hits a warp storm, 
and like gets mangled, but then they capture a faint signal and they start following it and it leads them to a forge world that was once thought lost and dead called Ordex Thog. And Ordex Thog is instead held by the uh, by Chaos Knights and the Dark Mechanicus, which unfortunately we get no rules for in this book. Mm. But they're you, you can tell they're like they're building up to one day having Dark Mechanicus as its own faction, but they're not there yet. But it turns out like this entire world has it is like it's like a giant borehole through the planet that's got like a fortress on one end and a big resonating spire on the other, and then inside the the borehole there's a bunch of like trapped demons that are powering the thing, and it's basically the idea is it's like a giant warp weapon. And so there's, but there's some imperial signal coming f- from within it, and so that's what uh, Kroll's uh, fleet kind of hones in on, and so he splits up his force with like the Mechanicus forces and some knights attacking the fortress, and then other knights attacking the resonating spire, and uh, he's got a secret weapon with him on his side, and it's a thing called the Varlian device. He doesn't know exactly how it works, but apparently it turns out he is part of like a subcult inside the Mechanicus called the Teeth of the Cog, who hate psychers with a living passion. And so he thinks he can, if he activates this in the right place, he, he's convinced that he can like basically shut down psychers everywhere. And so he's obsessed with this. And and it's basically the the entire thing is it, it and the fluff section is really short in this one, but it's a fight. You know, like you've got the fight against the spire on one side, which eventually falls with like a self sacrificial maneuver. And you know the the resonating spire is like summoning demons, so there are some demons there, but they they manage to take out the spire. And then on the other side, there's the fortress, which the fortress is basically one huge trap. But uh, so they're not able to get to the center of it, but he gets close enough. He decides, I'm just going to activate this device now. And like it does shut like it sends out this wave that shuts down a lot of the knights and a lot of the chaos knights and shuts down more of the chaos knights than the uh, than the imperial knights. But it also destroys all the safeguards that are holding the the demons inside the uh, the borehole. And so they all come out and they fight everybody because they hate the chaos knights and the dark mechanicum for trapping them there and they hate the imperium because they hate the imperium and that's basically like and the imperium forces run away and the head of the imperial knights there is pissed that kroll had this weapon activated it destroyed some of her knights doing it and didn't tell her about it so she actually grabs him with like a thunder fist gauntlet doesn't crush him just runs off with him to interrogate him later Interesting. And, and scene. <laughs> like, well, and that's interesting because, like, we know that, like, that, you know, we've got War of the Spider and then Pariah coming up. Uh, maybe what they did here ties, you know, will tie into what the Necrons have planned in Pariah and going into the new edition. So that's actually cool, like, build up storytelling. Yeah. Oh, and not all of the, uh, the Imperium fleet is able to get away because some of the demons actually, like, take over. The com- like one of the command ships and order a bunch of the secondary ships to just fly into the sun. That's so probably not good for the ships. Not not so much, no. 
So it's it, it. I wouldn't even say it's a pyrrhic victory for the Imperium. I mean, technically, some of them get away, but they end up freeing a whole like four like exalted demons in the process. So that's bad. I mean, but, I guess like, it really, depends on perspective, but yeah, sure. Yeah. But really, the the I think the important lesson to take away from the story is that the Mechanicus is full of people who are who are zealots and assholes, and do not think of anyone but themselves. Huh? But we knew that, that already. Yeah. Like, so what did we learn? <laughs> okay, we reinforced the lesson we already learned. Ah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> But let's let's focus on the main things that people are here for the Psychic Awakening books. But like, okay, so before I do that, I do want I am happy that the story does have a beginning and an end and an actual resolution. I don't does think it, it really does much for the greater Psychic Awakening narrative, but it's a neat story within it, and it does actually end. <laughs> so it's to me, it's better than most of the ones they've released so far. Well, it sounds there wasn't as much awakening in this one, except showing how that it can be removed or shut down. In a way. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely it was involved in the psychic phenomenon that was going around. So, it, like, it's it's part of it's it's like an I would say it's like a side story to the greater narrative. I think all of them have been. Yeah, no, you're not wrong there. All right, so. Uh, we start off with the uh, Mechanicus rules. Uh, we get it in print the uh, Tech Priest Manipulus or Manipulus uh, rules. Um, we've got the new Cerberus Sulfur Hounds, which, and I don't know if the, like they give point values for these at like near the end of this section. I I don't know if it's really worth mentioning the point values because they're going to be valid. F- I, well, I would think that these point values that were in Psychic Awakening would be applicable, but I don't think they will. Yeah, because yeah. they, they would have been balanced for 8th edition, and then they're already planning on reprinting all the points for ninth. so... Yes. Yeah. yeah. I so, wouldn't necessarily take it, that those are going to be the points. Yeah, I so I, I don't even think I, it, it's really worth digging into the points values too closely. But... Uh, but yeah, like uh, Cerberus Sulfur Hounds, like the unit, they're equipped with, uh, everyone's equipped with a, a Phosphor Blast Pistol, Sulfur Breath, which is like the fire breathing on the dogs, dog horse things, uh, clawed limbs and a power maul. And then the, or that's, that's what the alpha is equipped with. The regular ones just have dual pistols instead of the pistol and maul. The pistols are actually pretty like the blast pistol strength five the others are strength four you don't get cover from if they shoot you they're all ap minus one one damage um they can fire pistol weapons uh even if they've advanced so they're gonna be very fast they're gonna be very mobile sulfur breath automatically hits and is also a pistol and also denies cover and is also ap minus one the unit can get up to nine models total they move 12 they've got pretty standard uh, Mechanicus stat line with a 6-up and vulnerable save. So yeah, they've got the same rad saturation ability like Vanguard have where if you're within an inch of them, you're at minus 1 toughness. So they are... And they've got 3 wounds per model, which is actually pretty decent. And uh, So um, 
like they're a fast, close range shooty unit. But then yeah, they also, but, but they do get extra attacks with the clawed limbs, so that's not bad. That's the one thing that I kind of would would have been nice here is maybe some more melee options to like actually have them be like because they're they're a very like you said very short range pistol shooting unit, and it would be nice to have the ability to like go in and just have them also kind of be kitted out for combat. But I get why there's plenty of plenty of other options in in admec that that can do close combat stuff so yeah but i mean they're going to be a with the ability to fire their pistols on the charge or on you know when they advance and with the like the sulfur breath being d6 shots and all these being at ap minus one i mean it's going to be like a really good fast skirmishing unit like if you've got to kind of like soften up an objective or kind of want to pinch or something in it's i could definitely see using this one and then there's the Cerberus Raiders, which are the uh, the Ranger version of this. Like, so let's see, they've got they don't have the uh, pistols and fire thing, but they are armed with assault weapons, uh, galvanic carbines. Uh, they've got cavalry sabers, which is kind of nice and old school. And the uh, and the Raider Alpha also has a uh, an Arkeo revolver pistol, but he still has the the rifle as well, so he doesn't give that up. Um, they can take an enhanced data. Th- Tether, which lets them reroll morale tests. And uh, they are kind of a character. Well, they first off, they get a free night. Uh, they get a free scout move at the beginning of the game or at the start of the first battle round. And then uh, they can pick out characters. So this is kind of like a fast moving sniper unit and wound rolls of six up do mortal so wounds. So they're, yeah, they're basically like horse snipers. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> then we get the two Taraxi units, uh, the Sterilizers, which are the Flamers, which uh, they can uh, they can uh, basically uh, go back up into Deep Strike the way that like uh, Swooping Hawks can, and they get an extra attack when they do charging. Again, uh, their main weapons are AP minus one, strength four. Or strength, and their talons are strength three, strength four. If they if they charged or did heroic intervention, so yeah, these these things are made to like swoop in, burn people with, and they've got twelve inch flamers, so they can actually deep strike and flame people, and then they can like pull away and then deep strike again, and then pull away and deep strike again. See that that'll be a very interesting tactic because I know with swooping hawks you could bring them in, but you couldn't jump them out till next turn. So you only really could do that jump in like two or three times a game, depending on how long the game went. Well, yeah, so, it's the same thing here. Yeah, you do them at the like you you soar away at the start of a movement phase, and then they can uh, descend with the thermal riders ability at the end of a movement phase. But they also specify it can't be the same turn. Okay. Oh, at the end of their movement phase or any movement phase? At the beginning of, at the beginning of your movement phase. You can have them soar away, and then Thermal Rider's ability says, like, you can either set them up in Deep Strike, or if they soared away, you can Deep Strike them, but they can't, but they also says in the soar away ability, they cannot soar away and descend in the same turn. Okay. So, yeah, you're only going to be able to do it a couple of times a game. But still, like, the unit is five models, 
base and then you can add up to five more. So if you can like deep strike in, you know, five to 10 flamers on somebody that can reach at, at nine inches away and then do it again to a second unit later in the game. That's great. It depends on how survivable they are then. Um, they are strength four, tough three, two wounds each, four up six, uh, with a four up six up. They'll probably die. Most likely. Cause I mean, I, I'm, I'm likening them to fire dragons. If you remember the, the old fire dragon meta where they'd run up in their <laughs> wave serpent, all pop out, use their guns, melt something down and then just die. Yeah, possibly. Just, it depends on like how you layer your attacks, I suppose. And then there's the Taraxi Skystalkers, which can do the same thing with the, the jump and drop back down. And then they, their thing is they've got Flechette Carbines, which are three shot, or sorry, not three shot, five shot, uh, strength three assault weapons at, with a 24 inch range. I don't see these. And then they have, they have grenades that they can throw at vehicles. Or they actually they can throw basically any time that anything they move over they can uh, drop grenades on, and they roll one d six for each unit model in the unit they f- or in this unit add two to the result of that if the unit they're targeting is a vehicle and on a five up the unit suffer the enemy unit suffers a mortal wound so they can like fly over things and drop grenades and they're better at hurting vehicles. Yeah, that sounds exactly like swooping hawks. Yeah, they're they're so basically you get Mechanicus swooping hawks, and then Mechanicus swooping hawk fire dragons. Yeah, but the flamers are cooler. Yeah, the, the flamers are definitely cooler. And then they've got the Scorpius Dune Rider and Disintegrator in here. Finally get those in a standardized print version. And uh, then we've got the new Arche- Archaeopters. The, there's the Transvector, which can carry six models. Uh, it can carry, it has a transport capacity of six Secutari, which I believe is a Forge, the Forge World units. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forge World Electro Priests, Forge World Tech Priest, or Forge World Skatari Infantry Models. It cannot transport Belisarius Call because he's slightly huge. Makes sense. But, I mean, it is just a transport. It's got, like, some heavy Cognus Stubbers. That's about it. <laughs> and it moves, you know, it's pretty much standard flyer movement. Although, okay, yeah. and it, Okay, and it's got all, like, the standard, like, it's got hard to hit, airborne, um, hover jet, so it can you can drop it down like you can most transport flyers, and then it's it's got the same maneuver. It's got a maneuverable craft ability, which makes it fly kind of like an Eldar. When this model moves in your movement phase, first pivot it on, on the spot up to ninety degrees, then move the model straight forwards, and then it can pivot up to 90, 90 degrees one more time at any point during this move. Okay, that is a super useful trait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, and all the Archaeopters have that, so they all move like Eldar Flyers. And they all pretty much have the exact same rules. does have a cool ability, uh, Command Uplink. If this model has Command Uplink, which you can, which it comes with uh, stock, it can use uh, Forge World units within six inches of it can use its leadership instead of their own, which it's Leadership 9. And most Mechanicus stuff is like Leadership 7. And then, uh, or you can trade that out for a chaff launcher, which uh, reduces, when people shoot at it with a ranged weapon, uh, it reduces the damage by one to a minimum of one. I'm not really sure which, I mean, I would assume the reduced damage, they're they're all ten wounds, so the reduced damage is probably the better option. 
Yeah, I would think so because if you're going to be sh- if you're going to be shooting at a plane like that, you're either going to be shooting at it with either hordes of small fire to try to take it out with volume, or you're going to be shooting at it with a dedicated anti uh, anti air thing that'll do multiple damage. So, yeah, like that's going to be super useful against the bigger, you know, like anti uh, anti air stuff. Yeah. Now the command uplink is free, and right now the chaff launcher costs 20 we don't know what that'll be when they update it but i would expect the the cost to be still like the chaff launcher would be the far the more expensive option mm-hmm. um then we've got the gunship version the stratoraptor which is has two cognus heavy stubbers two heavy phosphor blasters and a twin cognus las cannon and the cognus las cannon i kind of like it you can choose which i think most of these are like this you can choose to, the weapon to shoot with even if the bear advanced and if they advanced you subtract two from the hit roll i don't know if that which i don't know how that's going to work with the penalties are capped at minus one i mean it'll be minus one yeah <laughs> i'm, I'm willing to bet that's how that works <laughs> or at least nothing else will stack with it yeah to make it yeah. worse but uh yeah, so it's got stubbers, phosphor blasters, las cannon, so yeah, it's this this is your gunship variant. Otherwise all the rules are exactly the same. And then last one is the Fusilov, which is the bomber. It has four Cognus heavy stubbers, and then it's bomb rack, which is just an ability it has. At the end of your movement phase, the model can drop heavy bombs on one enemy unit it moved over in that phase. To a maximum of 10d6, roll 3d6 for each vehicle and monster model in that unit, and 1d6 for each other model in that unit. For each roll of 4 up, the unit suffers a mortal wound. It's not limited to once per game, so you can do it every time you fly over. So it's kind of like the Tau Flyers in that regard. Yeah, but does it start with a bomb? That was going to be my question. It always <laughs> has bombs. There's an, like Because you don't spend the bomb. I know. Just, <laughs> we're just making fun of the Tau. It shit. does actually start with the bombs. That's good. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, the Archaeopters look okay. I'd have to see how the, it's really going to matter what the new flyer rules look like. Cause we know those are changing significantly yeah. and that will completely change how playable these are right now. I don't know if I would really use any of them. Maybe the Stratoraptor gunship. Yeah. Last cannons are always a good, yeah. a good option. And with the fact that you've got the Scorpius Dune Rider, which is already like you've already got a transport. I don't know if you need the flyer transport and I don't know if the bomber is is good enough, especially because the bomber and not counting war gear is the most expensive. Although the uh, Stratoraptor I think ends up being the most expensive because of how much its last cannons cost. Mm-hmm. So but again, points values don't really mean anything right now. So, well, but it, it, I, I imagine they'll be relative, though. Like it'll right. go, you know, it'll still probably be the most expensive after they make the adjustments, right? And then, uh, this, so moving away from the units, now we've got the thing called Holy Order Warlord traits. These are weird, and I don't know how I feel about these. So if an Adeptus Mechanicus character model, excluding name characters, is your warlord, you can select a warlord trait from below for them instead of using the ones from the codex. So there's four four groups, and each one lets gives you three aura abilities to choose between. So there's leaning there's learnings of the genitor, which can at the start of your turn you select one of the R abilities below until the start of your next turn the warlord is treated as having this R ability on their data sheet. So each one of these has three abilities, 
which makes this seem a lot more complex than I think it needs to be. I don't want to go through and read all of these. Well, either that or it seems a lot more Tau, because isn't that what Ethereals did? Kind of? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. But it's like you're but you're picking it's like you're picking a warlord trait, but then that warlord trait is effectively giving you like a whole rather than just like one thing, it's giving you like a whole suite of things that you can uh, rotate between. Yeah, and I, I, I will say this. I like the flexibility it gives, and it allows you to have a warlord that is much more like support focused. Um, it is a little it's a little cumbersome and yeah. like in the options, but like I do like the tactical flexibility. Yeah, I know the flexibility is great. I just think, I think this is just, it's really kind of clunky as far as ha- the in- implementation of it. Yeah, having having four four disciplines with three options each is probably too many options. Yeah. And like I said, I don't want to read through all of these because, like I said, that I mean, that's it's 12 abilities and some of these are like, are very situational. Yeah, which so. is why I think I don't mind... The idea means because like the, the, the ability to tactically switch. And the other thing that's kind of nice is, you know, with, as they mentioned with uh, going into the ninth edition, like the army buildings, like being more flexible when you pick like within all within one force, this kind of falls in line with that where it's like, okay, now you've got these sub options of things, but yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know that the, all of the abilities are a little unique, but I, I don't mind. I don't mind that you get like extra flexibility with the warlord traits. So, so so basically, I can kind of break down the groups. So, so learnings of the janitor is mostly about making units tougher, like specifically like servitors, or improving damage, or you know, shrugging off more damage from. Uh, or not shrugging off. Okay, sorry. That see, they can't even group these together in the same. They don't. They're all yeah. very different. So. So, yeah, Learnings of the Genitor tends to make things either tougher or do more damage in melee. Analyses of the Logos is more focused on, inf- looks like, shooting, but also shirking off psychic mortal wounds. Yeah. Um, Divinations of the Magos uh, also help with shooting and rerolling charge ranges. And then Fabrications of the Artisan helps with vehicles, specifically, like, allowing non-flying vehicles within six inches to like fall back and shoot. Or if you are shooting at vehicles, doing mortal wounds, if you roll a six to wound that kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, I, it's clunk. They're clunky. And the, the synergy between the abilities doesn't like, it doesn't really feel like there's any, Mm -hmm. it's all, I would almost have had rather had just give me one warlord trait and I pick which one I want. But like have a larger list or like here's three warlord traits like you can choose this group and in each group you get three warlord traits to choose from. But then like the one you pick doesn't give you like an extra keyword or anything. So it's not like there's like you're keying off of anything. So they all just go off of like the the generic Forge World placeholder. So eh, I, I don't I like the concept. I just I really don't like the implementation. It just seems unnecessarily confusing. Um, then they have stratagems. Most of these stratagems are stratagems for the new units. Although, like, Electro Priests, Rust Stalkers, Dragoons, Balistari, they get uh, some 
they get some strats they didn't have before, but a lot of these like like sterilizers. Okay, so the sterilizers with flamers, this one's actually kind of a neat one. Deeply sunk talons. Use the stratagem in your opponent's movement phase when an enemy infantry unit within an inch of any Taraxi ter- sterilizers units from your army is chosen to fall back. Roll a d6. On a 2-up, the unit cannot fall back. So they kind of get that witch ability. Yeah, that's kind of awesome. I, the interesting thing with looking at the, the stratagems and stuff in here is not not necessarily like how they're going to work. Because like that, you know, they're all kind of the things you would expect. What I thought was interesting was some of the ways that they're worded. Like there's a lot in here and you see, especially with the Imperial Knights and the, uh, the, the chaos Knights that are like, Oh yeah, this works except for you un- against units with the Titanic keyword, or this works against this type of unit, or this does things in the morale phase, which are interesting because I think those are kind of, I mean, obviously not they've announced ninth edition, those are future proofing it for the next edition. So I think it's kind of a hint at, where some of these core rules might actually be going. Yeah. And I do like this one for the, uh, the Cerberus Raiders, which are the, the sniper riders. Use a stratagem in your opponent's charge phase. When a Cerberus Raiders unit from your army is chosen as the target of a charge for the first time that turn, instead of firing overwatch, the unit can move or fall back as if it were your movement phase, but you cannot, can't advance. <laughs> yeah. That one's kind of cool. <laughs> and considering they move 12 inches, it's like, yeah, you're not getting a charge off on them if they have CP available. And then they have they have the build-your-own Forge World Dogma, and this one is handled differently than any of the others. Most of these have been in the past, like, oh, just pick pick a couple from these, and, like, these ones you can't take together, stuff like that. This is, like, you pick a category of Forge World that determines a primary ability that you have to take, and then there's a list of, like, three secondary abilities you can take. So it's less flexible, but more consistently thematic. Mm-hmm. I do like Deans because Deans do all feel like they're more tied together than the, than like the warlord traits. Like they all Agreed. do feel like they stack and they, they fall within, within a, sp- a specific category. Right. And I, and yeah, I kind of wish they had done the warlord traits this way or, or even tied the warlord traits to the, well, you want to tie them to this cause you want those warlord traits available for every forge world. But mm-hmm. yeah, it just seems like it would be better if they were grouped into, you know, some sort of mechanically consistent. So yeah, it's not, it's not quite as flexible as a lot of other ways to build your own chapter craft world etc but uh yeah it does definitely feel like thematically consistent which is nice um so for example like let's say you want to be an expansionist forge world you are a forge world that wants to go seek out more like find more uh stcs and things like that so your primary would be accelerated actuators at the end of the charge phase. If a unit with his dogma made a charge move, was charged or performed a heroic intervention, improve the AP characteristic of melee weapon models in that unit by one until the end of the turn. So you are more aggressive in close combat. Your weapons hit or like bite harder. And then your secondaries you could choose from forward operations, which gives uh, your Skatari Rangers units a free six inch move or acquisitive reach all your rapid fire weapons gain six inches of range or rugged explorators you don't suffer the penalty for advancing and firing assault weapons or dominus command net uh you replace your the broad spectrum data tether ability of models with this dogma with the following ability add one to the leadership of char- characteristic 
add one to the leadership characteristic of friendly Forge World models uh, within nine inches of a broad spectrum data tether, which I think is, I think it's normally six. So you can like pick that, and so you're going to end up always having the charge ability, and then you'll pick one of the other three or the other four. They've only got three groups like that to choose from. So on the one hand, it makes the Mechanicus, like I said, less varied. But on the other hand, that kind of matches the the Mechanicus because the Mechanicus aren't a very varied, flexible faction. And then finally, they have uh, the predefined Forge Worlds have a new, like if your Warlord is an Adeptus Mechanicus character and their Forge World is one of the ones listed below, you can swap out one of the canticles in their list of canticles of the Omnissiah with one of, the, with the, like the ability based on their Forge World. So for example, the standard canticles are things like uh, reroll failed morale tests, uh, litany, uh, do uh, D3 mortal wounds on a 6 for any enemy unit within an inch of you when canicles kick in or reroll hit rolls of one for in the fight phase. Uh, you always consider have cover for your saving throws um, or plus one strength or reroll uh, failed hit rolls of one for the shooting phase. So for example, let's say you're Mars. Mars is a pretty common one. That's Belisarius calls. Uh, Mars gets Panegyric procession models and affected units do not suffer the penalty for moving and firing heavy weapons. Increase the strength characteristics of heavy weapons models in the affected unit by one. So you could decide, yeah, I really don't pl- have any plans on getting into the fight phase. So I'm going to drop uh, the reroll hit rolls of one in the fight phase. I'm going to swap that out for this one from Mars. Since they don't have, it's kind of like their equivalent of having like Forge World specific psychic powers since they don't have psychers. And because it's a canticle, they can still either they can pick it, but they can't re re pick it, or they can try to roll it randomly in Mars. Like for example, if I remember right, rolls two. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think Mars is the one that gets two. But yeah, like that's interesting ideas. Yeah. Or let's see, Stygius, which is another real Stygius eight, which is a real common one. A plea of the Veiled Hunter. Affected units can shoot in a turn in which they fell back, but uh, they subtract one from the hit roll. So kind of like Ultramarines falling back. So yeah, I mean, s- some interesting ideas there. Um, I think people, I think most people are going to stick with the standard Forge Worlds though, and just use these and fit them into the canicles. All right, then we get to yeah. Imperial Knights. Bunch of new strats, like uh, thin their ranks. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase when an Armager Helverin model from your army is chosen to shoot with. Until the end of the phase, Armager auto cannons that model is equipped with make six attacks when targeting a unit that contains six or more models rather than 2d3. So, if you're shooting at a horde, you max out your number of shots, which basically makes it a blast weapon. <laughs> nice. Or hurled wreckage. Uh, use the stratagem when an enemy vehicle or monster is destroyed as a res- as a result of an attack made with a Thunderstruck Gauntlet, Freedom's Hand, or Paragon Gauntlet by an Imperial Knights Army Imperial Knights model from your army, uh, when resolving the weapon's ability as a result of that enemy model being destroyed, uh, the unit autom- when you target a second one and like throw it, you don't roll any dice; it just automatically takes three mortal wounds. Uh, something that uh, there's one that boosts the number of shots on the Lazen Pulsar on a Knight Perceptor. Flanking maneuver. This one's kind of interesting. Use the stratagem in your movement phase when an Imperial Knight's ar- model from your army is chosen to advance. Add eight inches to the model's move characteristic instead of making an advance roll. You must end the move within 12 inches of a battlefield edge and cannot charge this turn. 
So if you need to hustle across the board to get into position for something or to get to an objective or something like that, you can do that, but you can't use it to like slingshot yourself into a charge move. And there's just like a number of, uh, like all the different knight classes get particular, uh, you know, get a stratagem or two. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase. This one's cover the advance, 1 CP. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase after an enemy model has lost any wounds as a result of an attack made with a rapid-fire battle cannon, Venture Gantlet cannon or, th- cannon, or Thermal Cannon by a Knight Crusader model from your army until the end of the turn. The enemy model's unit cannot fire Overwatch. That's nice. <laughs> I mean, that's something where you could just, just splash something in. Like, splash mm-hmm. in a Knight Detachment and have that available and just... Yeah, I've got a Knight Crusader here, and it's just going to make sure that you don't you don't overwatch me when my other stuff charges in. Then they have build your own household tradition. Yeah, see the r- rules are available to both Quester Imperialis and Quester Mechanicus households, so you don't it's not a list isn't segregated at all in that fashion. However, there's a number like you pick two abilities from this list, but a bunch of them well, I say a bunch, it's well no, it's actually a pretty good number. One, two, three four, five, six, seven of the abilities count as both selections. Mm-hmm. That said, they're also really good. <laughs> yeah. So for like for an example of one that is a double selection, uh, Shattered Empire Stalkers when resolving an attack made by made with a ranged weapon against a model with this tradition by a model that is more than 24 inches away, it is treated as having the benefit of cover to its saving throw. So your knight, which has trouble getting cover any other time, at least in the current rule set, if somebody's shooting at you at 24 inches away, they you, you're always plus one armor. Or whatever the benefit of cover will be in the new edition. Mm-hmm. But you could also have, like, let's say... Oh, let's find a good one. Um... Like, let's say you really want to kill vehicles and monsters, you might take Slayers of Beasts and Noble Combatants. Slayers of Beasts says, when resolving an attack made with a melee weapon, not ca- or excluding Titanic Feet, by a model with this tradition against a vehicle or monster, you add one to the hit roll. And the Noble Combatants, when resolving an attack made with a melee weapon by a model with this tradition, excluding Titanic Feet, an unmodified hit roll of six scores an additional hit. So you, like, you could... And that's an unmodified, so the plus one you get from... Slayers of Beast won't make that more likely, but at the same time, you you more more of your hits will land, and you have a chance of getting even more hits. So if you like, if you're running like night heavy on the night gallants, for example, that might not be a bad one to have. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool ones in here that I think just make make knights play a little bit better, which is which is really cool. Uh, one that I thought was interesting is I kind of mentioned about like the future proofing is like machine focus. It's one that takes up two slots. When resolving an attack made by a model with this tradition that is subject to any negative hit roll modifiers, add one to the hit roll. Right, so it kind of ca- it'll counter those out. Yeah, so in, it, now it's like, yeah, it still you know it, it affects. It won't completely negate the minus two for alt, you know, altioc, whatever like that. But like now, going forward, next edition, you basically are never subject to modifiers, negative modifiers. That's amazingly huge. <laughs> Or, I mean, it could be a matter, like, we don't know if it's going to be a matter of, like, you have multiple mat- modifiers, but they'll never count to more than minus one, but maybe you only end up countering one of them. Don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, but, like, potentially, especially for the being a dual selection, like, that's, that is potentially, 
uh, amazingly huge. So yeah, uh, although there's just the, a lot the, of really cool options. Although, as you point out, the way it's written is any if you're subject to any negative hit roll modifiers, mm-hmm. which would imply like if you have several that that could apply, it should still theoretically counter them because it'll max out at one. Yeah, exactly. But just a, yeah, a lot of really cool options. And the the thing that's really nice about the household traditions is when we skip ahead to the chaos knights, the uh, what are they called? Uh, household bond, the dread household bonds are effectively the same. Like they're just the same things, but with chaos version, which is right. awesome. And like makes it so that the, they are a lot more like in balance. Right. And they, they need to be, you, you shouldn't feel penalized by playing the other version. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the, Wait, are we and talking then, about chaos um, knights or chaos space marines. Well, <laughs> okay, Chaos Knights. Uh, well, I've, I have always said, though, that, like, all I want for, like, some of these Chaos rules is just, like, the ability to play them, like, Imperium, but, like, with spikes. So, like, there's still a few other rules and stuff that you want to give to give them flavor, but I want them to basically be the same, because, like, the core of the model, you know, in the unit is the same. So it should still be as good as the Imperium option. And then we move on to Allegiance Oaths, which this is interesting because on the, when we get to the Chaos Knight side, they added we know they added Chaos Knight households. The Chaos Knights already had like you pick one of these two groupings, either Iconoclast or Infernal, and that gave you an ability. Well, they didn't want to have Imperial Knights not have an ability and a ha- like uh, an Allegiance ability and a household ability, so they gave them an Allegiance ability. So now if you're Mechanicus, if you're a Mechanicus Nighthouse, uh, at the start of your turn, models with that oath regain a lost wound. So you just auto heal a wound. If you're Imperialis, uh, you get at plus one to your advance and charge rolls, not cumulative with any other modifiers. And then you get some Warlord traits you can pick from for those two. And so, so yeah, basically Knights... Imperial Knights and Chaos Knights are going to be working far more similarly than they have. So then we move into Chaos Knights and we get the actual Dread Households. So now we have Knight Houses to choose from. There's not as many. There's only five to choose from. And then there's the Build Your Own option. So, for example, if you're a, if you're an Iconoclast household, you might be House Herpetrax, which all your Knights get uh, plus two wounds or one wound if it's a War Dog. If you're House Lucaris, then your household bond is your melee weapons uh, add one to the hit roll in a turn in which you charged, were charged, or performed a heroic intervention. Or maybe you're uh, Infernal and you're like House Vextrix. Uh, If you're House Vextrix, uh, you can reroll a single hit roll and single wound wound roll made whenever you shoot or fight or fire Overwatch. So you get so you get two free rerolls per shooting or fighting set of attacks. Nice. And that's, and it's when you're chosen to shoot with. So even if you have like, you know, you have multiple shots, multiple attacks, you still only get to reroll one wound roll, one shoot roll and one wound roll. But that hit roll and wound roll don't have to be on the same attack. So if you had like a thunder, let, let's say you're a, like, what is it? The, is it the desecrator that is their equivalent of the gallant? Yes. Yeah. So, like, you've got the uh, the Chainsword and the Thunderstrike Gauntlet. You might choose to re-roll the hit on the Thunderstrike Gauntlet because you've got the minus one and you kind of want a little bit of reassurance. 
but then you might re-roll the wound on the chainsword because it's got less of a chance to wound. So you can kind of split that up, which is nice. It's a, it's a good amount of flexibility, and considering that's like you're going to be shooting and fighting theoretically every turn, that's the equivalent of four command points a turn per night. Yeah, yeah, that's that's huge. <laughs> and then like each house also gets its own relic and its own stratagem. So. Again, so they're going to play a lot more like Imperial Knights, which is, again, good. We want that. And then, yes, uh, the Dread Household Bonds, they are different names, but they're effectively the same ability. Like, for example, I, you know, I said, like, Slayers of Beasts and, uh, what was it? Noble, noble Fighters or something like that? Yeah, so, yeah, Slayer of Beasts and Noble Combatants. On the Dread Household Bond, uh, that would be Slayers of Kings and Frenzied Attackers. It's the exact same abilities. Mm-hmm. Or, With the, the heretical names attached. Exactly. Or uh, on the on the Imperial side, there's uh, Survivors of Strife, which gives you an extra wound to armature models and two wounds to other knights. On the Chaos side, that's Hellforged Construction. Exact same thing, but with war dogs instead of armagers. I like it because I think it makes both of these, both of these factions feel a lot more fleshed out, uh, which is good because there's a lot of people that really enjoy building and painting those knights and being able to, a being able to play a more fuller armor with them is very nice, but also go, knowing in ninth edition that like the way that command points and stratagems and uh, detachments are going to work, it might be all of a sudden a lot easier to drop in a single imperial knight into your attachment detachments because you're not splitting out your main army into three detachments. So you might see some of the stuff splashed in a little bit more. Right. And uh, like the, the one that is slightly different between the two is on the Imperium side, there's pains of old night, which lets you reroll a wound roll of one against psychers or demons. Whereas the chaos side gets vengeful outcasts, which just does that same reroll against all Imperium units. Yeah, so I th- better, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, I think that one's a little bit, definitely a little bit better. But yeah, that's, uh, I mean, so yeah, Chaos Knights are going to play much more similarly to Imperial Knights. That There is nothing bad about that. And then finally, we have Chaos Demons. Uh, Chaos Demons, uh, heavy on the Slanesh stuff, just because they're finally getting all those data sheets into, into a single book. I know, which I should be excited about, but at the same time, it's like, it's been about a year. Yeah, it has. I already have the models. I've already played them. I've used the data sheets they had at the time. So it's, I don't know, I, I should be more excited than I am, but I think it's because it's been so long since those models came out that I think the excitement's died down. Yeah. Well, and you know that the rules are probably going to change in well a couple of months. That is probably a smaller part of it, but I think the bigger thing is I've already used these models. Yeah, yeah this is not fresh. It's not not like fresh and new the way like Mechanics players are going to see like all the new Mechanicus units available. Yeah. And some of these, I think, are just reprints of like a couple of units that were in um, like chapter approved. Yeah, because like there's Blood Crushers and uh, Flesh Hounds are also listed. And like, hey, there's also a new another data sheet for Horrors because of course there is. But right. I think those are just because those are reprinted in those have been updated through various box sets. Cause like the flesh hounds got new models. 
So they got slightly different upgrades that were put into last year's chapter approved. So like they decided to reprint it, which is good. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what the differences are between like, Oh, I the seekers, they lowered the PL that's. Ah, so they put seekers in seekers were originally six PL. They are now four PL. And then how much power rating it costs you to buy more changes. So they said they were going to like, uh, and granted, they're going to do that in ninth edition more often, but they did to say they're going to finally start re-examining uh, uh, power level on a more regular basis. One thing I noticed when we were talking about the, uh, we kind of skimmed over it, but we we're talking about the different point levels for like uh, command points and stuff. They also mentioned that the PL approximate PL levels, um, you know, for a 500 point game was approximately 50 PL, which is about half of what PL currently is right now because. When we played two thousand point games, it was approximately a hundred PL, and now they're gonna they're saying that it's gonna be approximately two hundred PL. So I, I think we're in for a, a complete rebalancing of power levels. Yeah. Well and to be fair, Kevin, if you remember when, when index forty K was a thing, we pretty much calculated it out that one PL was about twenty points. Mm-hmm. And now it feels like they've dropped it down to one PL being ten points. Yeah. At least to start. We'll see how it goes from there. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. Oh, and there is there's one slight change to unholy speed, but it's significant. Unholy speed on the codex version reroll failed charge rolls for this unit. Unholy speed in the new data sheet when a charge roll is made for this unit, you can reroll the dice. Nice. The word failed is no longer in there. Oh, so if you need to get around, like make sure you get around to the backside of a. Right, like if you barely made it, you can re-roll it to see if you can get better. Now, it does say you re-roll the dice, so you don't, I don't, it doesn't sound like you can re-roll one of them, like if you roll right. a six and a one. I, I mean, I'm happy for that, I guess, but at the same time, if I make a charge, I'm happy, so... Right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, it, it's it's more... F- it's a little bit more flexibility. That's that's not bad. And then they, they reprinted Horrors once again. And Blood Crushers and Flesh Hounds, which I think there was, again, we're bringing in the updates from Chapter Approved. So, again, kind of getting all these into one place. Uh, there's uh, sets of stratagems for each of the four Chaos Gods. So, Dennis, you want to take a look at those uh, Slanesh ones? Yeah, it should be just a page or two before that. I know. But the page or two. Oh, they, oh Blood Crushers. I don't care about Blood Crushers. No one cares about blood crushers. That is Kevin. That is there's a stratagem that makes me care about blood crushers. <laughs> <laughs> like we'll get to it, but there's a, there's a reason now to take blood crushers. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think the the one you like razor sharp crest is nice, but it's not that probably useful. You were talking about the sinuous undulation, which yeah, that's going to be super useful for the cavalry because if you use it on a unit which is going to take um, shots until the end of that phase, that cavalry unit, um, if they're shooting at that cavalry unit, they have to reduce all, uh, subtract one from all hit rolls. So, yeah, because one of the problems with getting Slanesh across the board was getting shot up off the table. Mm-hmm. So this will help, although I kind of wish it wasn't just cavalry, because most of the time cavalry can make that first turn charge. So... I don't know. I don't. I mean, if if I did not make the charge, yes, I would want to use that. Well, strategy. also, I can see in a situation. Let, let's say you made the charge and wiped the unit out, and now you're just sitting there. 
Uh, true, true, yeah. true. Yeah, turn that then you like on turn two or turn three, or they fall back on turn two and leave you out there. Now you can make yourself more survival while you line up for the next charge. But that's about the only one of those, because I mean, I don't see chariots on the board. I mean, maybe I'll try and use them again, but <laughs> there's a reason you don't see chariots on the board. Right. Um, and it doesn't help that they're huge and take up a lot of space and they're very fragile. I mean, they're glass cannons. I mean, they can get a ton of attacks off if you can get in melee, but even if you get them in melee, they their, their footprint isn't big enough to take out a horde, even though they've got that many attacks. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Sinuous Undulation is the only one I, I would really, really use. Let's see. Looking at the Nurgle ones, Rest and Decay lets your plague, plague Bearers, any Plague Bearer infantry unit, uh, if they roll a six to hit, they automatically hit and wound. That's pretty nice. Yeah. Putrid Demise, your Plague Bearer Cavalry, which is going to be your Plague Drones, basically can explode. Okay, that's not good. Like on on a, you roll a d6 for every unit, before you're moving the model, roll a d6 for every unit within six inches, excluding Nurgle units. On a two up, the unit being rolled for takes a mortal wound. No, that's not good. Um, Acidic Slobber for Beasts of Nurgle lets your unmodified wound rolls in the fight phase of six do an additional mortal wound. And then Nurgling Infestation lets you, uh, like at the end of any phase except the morale phase, select a Nurgling unit from your army, roll 1d6 for each model in that unit that was destroyed this phase. On a 5-up, the model comes, a model comes back with full wounds remaining. Also not good. No one wants Nurgles back on the table. <laughs> well, Nurglings are great for, can- like, because you can deep strike them or infiltrate them. Let's see, which is it? Well, they're demons, so anything can deep strike. But okay, yeah. So you de- yeah. yeah, you can deep strike them in. Or no, they can uh, mischief makers. They can infiltrate. Yeah, they can be set up on the anywhere within you know, as long as they're more than nine inches from the enemy deployment zone. But you can like drop them onto objectives. They'll sit there and hold it. And if you can just keep, I mean, they're four wounds each. They're small, so they're easy. To, they're like short, so they're relatively easy to hide. Um, if you can just like keep a unit of them alive. You can just camp on an objective, and especially mm-hmm. if missions are going to more progressive scoring, that can—I mean—that that can be a point builder right there. Yeah, you're all of a sudden going to have to dedicate resources to getting them off there, and they're right. they're tough. You know, they're they're tough, hardy units. Well, they're not that; they're too toughness. But well, but like, but I mean, like, they're usually big, and there's a lot of wounds that you have to chew through. So it's not like they're not super easy to peel off of there. Like True. you are going to have to dedicate resources to it, and if you're shooting at them, you're not shooting at something else. This is this is true. All right, so Kevin, you want to take a look at the uh, corn <laughs> strats? So the, there's there's two on here that are awesome. Uh, Rage Eternal, which is three CP, and it should be. Um, use the stratagem in the fight phase when a unit of bloodletter infantry, when a model in a bloodletter infantry unit has been destroyed. Until the end of the phase, roll 1d6 every time a model in this unit was destroyed. On a 4-up, that model is not removed until all of the attacking unit's close combat attacks have been resolved. And the destroyed model can make all of its close combat attacks against the unit that destroyed it before being removed. This model can make close combat attacks even if it would not normally be able to target the unit. So it's only a 4-up. So that's like the downside is you're paying 3 CP and then you only have a 50-50 chance 
of the model still being there. But blood letters have boatloads of attacks. You're going to have a big unit. You're going to lose them in combat. And regardless of where they're positioned, if they're in the back, they get to make their full attacks before they go away. That is huge. That is That makes them all of a sudden like very effective to just throw them into into a unit and not necessarily worry if they're going to die, you know, that they're still going to get their attacks back. So that's, that's awesome. I really like that one. The other one that I love is the brass stampede. It's once uh, one CP. And this is actually a reason why you might take blood crushers. Now use the stratagem in your charge charge phase. When a blood letter cavalry unit from your army finishes a charge move for each model in the unit, that is you can select one enemy unit within one, inch of that model and roll a d6 on a two up that enemy unit suffers one mortal wound on a six that enemy unit suffers d3 mortal wounds if these mortal wounds destroy all enemy units within one inch of your unit you can if you wish immediately declare another charge that is amazing it's not going to go off every time you but if you you can use it to tar- to selectively mop up smaller units and just kind of do the old, I think it was third edition where like you kind of were able to just melee into another unit and just keep it rolling. You can effectively do that now, like in small cases and that's just super fun. Well, and if somebody's using like those, like you see people using like little bitty models or little bitty units as like screening units, to protect their characters. You charge into one of those. And if you can get enough models, within an inch of them, yeah, you've got a really solid chance of just wiping it that, that little unit off the board and then lining up the charge to go after what you really want to go after. And it's and the fact that it's after the charge move also. So, I mean, like once per turn, you could pull off a ridiculous, like, double chain charge. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I I think there's a lot of potential for that. I think it's very cool. I don't know if it's by itself enough to take, you know, blood crushers, but it makes them a lot more of a viable, viable choice now. Right. Uh, then the other ones, uh, scent of blood, use the stratagem, uh, in your charge phase, select one flesh on unit. This unit can be chosen to charge with this, uh, with this phase, even if it advanced that turn. In addition, add two to the result of that charge. If any enemy models, uh, excluding vehicles have been destroyed this turn. That's nice. Cause your dogs can, basically advance and charge flesh hounds aren't quite as good as they were in previous editions, but that's still really cool to be able to advance and charge. And then the other one is involved the, the chariots, uh, use the stratagem in any phase when a blood letter chariot unit from your army is chosen as a target of an attack until the end of this phase when resolving an attack made against that unit, have the damage inflicted rounded up. So that's cool. I don't see chariots, blood letter chariots that often, but, it's a neat, it's a neat one. Yeah, and you know, you're going back to the blood crushers, at least they have an extra wound, which I think they got back in chapter approved. I believe so. Yeah, I believe that was one the big, basically the big change. Yeah, and they also their PL also dropped from their Codex version. Their PL six now. Mm-hmm. Richard, you don't play Zinch, so I feel kind of unfair dumping that one on you. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Okay. Booga <laughs> booga, psychic psychic. Yeah, I. The one that definitely jumps out at me is the very first one, Minions of Magic, uh, where you spend a CP, select a Horrors Infantry unit from your army, and the first time they attempt to manifest a psychic power, you just auto-roll a nine. That's cool. 
<laughs> I mean, otherwise, it's like, if are you using screamers or flamers or, uh, let's see. Uh, there's one lets you uh, basically warp jump a one of your uh, heralds around. Like, basically pull it off the table and then deep strike it down somewhere else. That one's kind of interesting, especially because that's done during... It's done in the movement phase, so um, it gives you, like, again, like, if you want to line up somebody to be the closest target for a smite or some other psychic ability, that could be really useful. And then the last section of this, and the last part of the book here, uh, is Exalted Greater Demons. This section is cool. Because yeah. basically each one is you have to have the appropriate greater demon in your army that is not a named character. So no making Shalaxi Hellbane or Scarbrand an exalted model. But uh, until the end of the battle, the model gains the exalted keyword, which opens up some new artifacts for it. And you select either one. Of the, each one has a list of six abilities that you can either pick one or roll two up randomly. And from what we saw, none of them are bad. Yeah, they're all really good. <laughs> so, again, Bloodthirsters for you, uh, Kevin. <sighs> yeah, um, there are six options, and they're all six really good, but there's one that I think you're going to take. It's, so you, you have the option with any of these to pick one or roll for two, and I think you're always going to pick one. But the options, uh, Hellfire Rot Armor, uh, this model has a safe characteristic of 2+. plus. Uh, Bloodlust, this model cannot lose more than eight wounds in the same phase. Any damage inflicted at that point has no effect. That's the one you're going to take. <laughs> uh, Arch Murder, add one to the damage characteristic of all weapons. Slaughterborn in the charge phase. When this model makes a charge move, uh, as charged is charged by other enemy units or performs a heroic intervention, add one to its strength and attack characteristics until the end of the fight phase. This is cumulative with unstoppable ferocity ability. Rage Unchained, this model is considered to have double the amount of wounds remaining for purposes of de determining the road to which it's on its damage table. Unrivaled Battle Lust, when a, model, when a charge roll is made for this model, add two to the result. In addition, this model can perform a heroic intervention if there are enemy models within six inches instead of three, and when doing so, can move six inches instead of three. All of those are good. Blood Lust is the one you're going to take, though. because At least right now. Because... If you're running Bloodthirsters, the problem you're having is they get shot off the table before they attack, before they can get there, and that effectively means that you're going to be able to get it. You're going to stick around for at least two phases, and you're going to be able to make charges. They've got some cool artifacts. I don't know how to say that. Grummacht? Yeah, the GW makes up stupid names for stuff. <laughs> like the, the, the one in the the corn demon kin book that was like uh, go red drinker or gore drinker or whatever they decided yeah. to call it. <laughs> um, basically it's an awesome battle axe uh, that replaces an axe of corn uh, plus three strength AP minus four D six damage. When resolving an attack made with this weapon, a damage roll of one or two counts as three instead. So yeah, you're always going to be doing a lot. The other thing that's nice about that is, in addition to this, the first time a model with this relic is destroyed, roll a d6. On a 4+, plus, that model, set the model up again at the end of the phase, as close as possible to the previous position, and no more than one inch away from enemy models. And more, sorry, and more than one inch away from enemy models. 
with D6 wounds remaining. This model loses all Warlord abilities, Warlord traits, relics, and exalted abilities. Instead, it has the Rage Unchained exalted ability, see left. Uh, and if it's destroyed, if the model is destroyed as your Warlord, this model is no longer your Warlord and counts as, counts as having been destroyed. So effectively, this is actually another KDK uh, like you know thing that you used to be able to do. There was an axe that you had that when it, when it, the bearer died, it unleashed a Bloodthirster. That's basically what happens here is a new Bloodthirster with the Rage Unchained ability, which counts as double the wounds remaining for his damage table, basically just appears on the on the table with D6 wounds left. So it's a really cool, like, yeah, you killed him. Yeah, but now you have to fight the demon that was in his axe. That's cool. That's, that's Yeah, that's, that's a very dramatic. cool, very fluffy thing. Uh, and you know, effective on the table, because again, you're... If you take, for example, Blood Blessed and that, you're effectively going to get two or three turns on the table with the Bloodthirster, as opposed to right now, you're maybe getting one, you know, and maybe you're going to get one attack off before you get shot off the table, but now he's able to stick around a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, the other the other relic that I liked was the uh, Blood Drinker Talisman. Uh, roll a d6 every time an attack made by a melee weapon of this model with this relic destroys an enemy model on a five plus the model with this relic gains one lost wound after it is res- resolved all of its close combat attacks with a fight. A model with this blade relic cannot gain more than eight lost wounds during the same turn uh, as a result of the artifact. So basically the more models you kill, the more wounds you get back, which that's really cool. Right. Uh, and then the other one's Rune of Brass, which is an anti-psyker one. Enemy psychers suffer perils of the warp on any psychic test that includes any double uh, wilts when is within 16 inches of the model. Enemy psychers that suffer perils of the warp within 16 inches suffer three mortal do, uh, suffer three mortal wounds. Do not roll to see how many mortal wounds are affected. That's neat. I don't think it's as cool as the other two. Mm-hmm. But yeah. That's super cool. That's a w- very useful way to make blood bloodthirsters uh, scary again. All right. Uh, looking at Lords of Change, again, none of us play Zinch, but I can tell you the ability that jumped out to me on this list was uh, Spell Thief. When this yeah. model successfully <laughs> denies a psychic power, the psyker unit that attempted to manifest that power loses it and can't attempt to manifest it for the rest of the game. That's mean. Yeah, that is awesome. And you're going to deny a lot with with a Lord of Change. Like. Right. I mean, they've got a couple of others that are really nice, like uh, Nexus of Fate. You On a roll of d6 at the start of your turn, on a 1 or a 6, you gain a command point, which I imagine will be eroded to be, like, in the command phase in the new yeah. rule set, but... The, the, and, like, again, this is one of those things where it's like, none of these are bad. Like, it maybe it's knowing an additional power and being able to manifest one more, or... Uh, minus one to be hit with ranged attacks or, hey, whenever you do a, a mortal wound with a psychic power, it always does one additional damage. You know, they, none yeah. of those are bad. Like you could, I could definitely see rolling twice and taking whatever. And they do also specify on, like if you roll doubles, roll again until you have two different ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- they're good options. Yeah. Great unclean ones. Uh, you can either end up with a t- toughness characteristic of eight or plus one to all your disgustingly resilient rolls. So you're disgustingly resilient on a four up, which means ignoring half the wounds you take. Avalanche of Rotten Flesh, when a charge roll is made for this wound, add one to the result. In addition, its crushing bulk ability inflicts 
D3 mortal wounds on a two instead of one mortal wound on a four up. That one's just a really just descriptive uh, ability. Avalanche of rotten flesh. Just you. <laughs> Uh, living plagues. If you uh, attack with a melee weapon and your double their toughness, your strength is double their toughness. You do an additional uh, hit on a successful hit roll. Gift of bountiful vomit. If we're talking about some <laughs> descriptive ones. Yeah. Each of your shooting phases, you select one enemy unit that's visible to this model and roll a d6 for each model in that unit within 12 inches of this model to a maximum of seven. For each roll of three up, that unit suffers a mortal wound. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, last one is actually the one you probably well, again we don't know how the morale phase has been changed as of right now it's the one I would take the least uh, hideous visage subtract one from the leadership characteristic of enemy units while they're within 12 inches of any models with this ability subtract two if they're within six so I mean suppose it, like if you get into a unit and you don't kill all of them but you kill a lot of them you've got a really good chance of making more of them run away mm-hmm um, then they, like, there's a Relic Plague Flail. The big difference on it is that it is, uh, Assault 6, so it's twice as many shots and Strength plus 1. And the important thing there is because, like other Plague Flails, the damage can spill over onto other enemy units. Or onto other models, I should say. The, the excess damage from, because, like, each hit yeah. does 2 damage. But instead of just stopping that, like if the unit only has one wound remaining, you you don't stop there. You spill over the damage to the rest of the unit, so you can like wipe out a, a big unit with like one swing. Yeah, those flails uh, are awesome. Yeah, tome of a thousand poxes. You know, an additional psychic power from the Nurgle discipline, and if you rolled a seven on your psychic test, the psychic power can't be denied. And then the last one is just the endless gift. You just gain a gain a wound, one lost wound at the end of. Each phase in which in which it lost any wounds, so yeah, great unclean ones just don't die with with some of these up. Yeah, <laughs> like if you were if like let's say you decided to let it ride and you ended up rolling a one or two, or you you're tough eight and four up disgustingly resilient. Yeah, <laughs> that character just doesn't die at all ever. And then Dennis, you got exalted keepers of secrets. These are actually nice. Um, first, the traits, like we were saying, one CP to make them that. And uh, there's probably one that you could pick, but I think all of them are good. So I would probably just roll a 2d6, especially since if you get a dupe, it tells you to roll again. Because, like, the first one adds two to your move. And when you advance or charge, add one to that. So that makes you really. I mean, Keeper Secrets are already really mobile. This adds to it. Um, the second one makes them instead of a five up in bone, have a four up in bone. That's probably one of the better ones on there because saving is super important and getting a whole extra number, especially on an in bone save, really, really good. Um, but the third one's also nice. Ranged attacks that target this model are at minus one to the wound roll. So yeah, you'll hit them, but you won't be able to wound them as well, which. I mean, your last cannons that would be wounding them on threes are now going to be wounding them on fours, which that's is also a big helps. difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. which helps, helps for survivability. The fourth one's your offensive one. Um, when you attack with a melee weapon, unmodified rolls of six give you an additional hit. And keeper secrets are beasts in melee combat. Having that additional hit on the sixes, 
I mean, is going to be super nice. And they normally have a bunch of attacks anyway. Um, like you said, Rob, I'm not sure how um, morale is going to play out. But this one sounds really cool. Um, once per morale phase, only once, after an enemy unit fails the morale test but before they flee, this model can move as it was your movement phase so long as it ends the move closer to the unit that failed the morale test. In addition, any enemy model that flees from a unit within that's within six inches of the model, um, this model regains one lost wound. So if someone's fleeing, you can move to them. And if models flee while they're within like the aura of this, it heals. So yeah. that's interesting, unique, and pretty cool. Um, I don't want to say it's the weakest of them, but it's the most situational. And then the last one, Battle Rapture, is extended heroic interventions. That you can do it at six, in- six inches instead of three, and move six inches instead of three. And when you consolidate, you consolidate D3 plus three instead of three. So it's just goes into the, hey, I move a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, one through four, I really like. Five and six are a little weaker, but I'd probably still roll two dice. And if I got one through four and one roll and five or six and the other, I'd still be happy. I think five, if I rolled five and six is when I'd be slightly sad. <laughs> but yeah, three and four would make you a really a beast. Yeah. Uh, as for the artifacts, Jewel of Excess, I like. I won't use, but I like because it pretty much gives you the um, Grey Knight ability of, hey, I'm plus one to all my psychic tests. Well, technically not all psychic tests, just um, denying and any ca- spells cast from Slanesh Discipline, which is all you'll pretty much cast except for Smite. So Smite, you don't get plus one on, but everything else and all your denies you do. Let's see. Whip of Agony is nice. I called that the Primaris Killer because Assault 6, so just you're hitting 6 times. Strength 6, AP minus 3, 2 wounds each. And you can use this within an inch, so it's like a pistol. So you just get locked up with Primaris or anything that has 2 wounds. You can probably, if you don't chew through them in melee, in the next shooting phase, you should be able to do some stuff there. And then Silver Strikes, the upgraded whip. Well, you forgot the, the most sword. important part about the whip. What? Something that other living whips don't do. It oh, auto-wounds. True, true, yeah. true. <laughs> I mean, that's huge. <laughs> well, yeah. But Strike 6, yeah. It was I mean, yeah, you're wound wounding, you're gonna be, like, wounding some, a lot of things on, on, on three. 3. But the, minus, the extra AP and yes. the auto-wounding is just really nice. And the fact it does 2 damage. Yeah. And then the um, Silver Strike, which is the upgraded Whitstealer Sword, is just nice. And I always try to take a Whitstealer Sword because I really like it. Um, so this is just upgraded. The nice thing is um, when you fight, you get two additional attacks with this weapon. So your attacks go up by two. And if you wound anybody, and I've had, I've wounded Calgar, I've wounded Bobby G. And it's fun to see the opponent's face when you say, okay, now he's at minus one to hit for the rest of the game. And they're like, what? because that's what it does yeah (laughs) and that's just really nice i mean they have to live to have that minus one applied because but because it does three damage most things die when they get hit by it but it's it's kind of a character crippler yes 
And so that's probably the one I would take most because, like I said, I already like using the wood stealer sword. So is here and prove it. Sure. And that's pretty much everything in the book. I'd say of, of the the four. So all, of all four um, sections, Mechanicus gets the most new stuff, but I don't know if it's the stuff that's going to have a lot of impact necessarily. But it's it's a lot of cool options to have, which is nice. Knights, Imperial Knights, I don't think, other than build your own uh, household, don't get a lot, but it does bring them into uh, parity with Chaos Knights. Chaos Knights get a lot of new stuff because that helps bring them into parity with, uh, with Imperial Knights. And then I think Demons probably get actually the most interesting set of new stuff to play with. If you count just the pages of Exalted, then yes. <laughs> But I think that's the, a very, I, very small part of the book. I think the exalted are very important because greater demons have been, I mean, they're good, but they've been a little bit lackluster. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if any of the factions got anything like super powerful to like balance things. And of course, talking about like, well, but rebalancing the meta, it doesn't, it doesn't matter right now. Right. <laughs> But I think they all got – I think everybody got cool toys, which is is what you want from a book like this. You want more options, and they definitely have that. Yeah. Yeah, all and the they, options they got were good, so. Yeah, and like, and anything that can, like, make you look at using existing units in a new way that you had didn't have an option for before, that's that's good. That's That's what we want, so. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with this. And of course we get a whole two weeks for it to percolate before we get war of the spider, <laughs> <laughs> which is honestly one I'm, I'm looking forward to for a couple of reasons. Cause I know like custodes and sisters of silence need some new stuff. Death guard. I'm curious to see what they do with that. I would love to see them update some of their existing units to actually have access to disgustingly resilient, but we'll see. And if I'm perfectly honest here is I don't know how excited I am for it because yes, I want custodes and sisters of silence and I want to see what that stuff is. But with the new, how things are looming over the horizon, do I want to pick up this book just for that? When I know I probably won't play those factions until after ninth is already released. True. True. Um, the the arguments I would make there is that this book will still be ninth legal, mm-hmm. and I being that it's a psychic awakening book, I don't know how long it'll be on shelves. So that would be my only thing about waiting, like holding off on getting it. I mean, I will probably get it regardless, just to have it available for my death guard for when ninth hits. Because again, right. they've said that all this stuff has been designed with ninth in. De- in mind. in mind, yes. So, I, I imagine everything in there would still be applicable. It would just depend on, yeah. It's like, are you planning? Like, are you going to plan on playing custodes going into ninth? Or are you going to like sit and wait on them and focus on like Eldar first? And I might focus on Eldar. That's the thing is that custodes might not see the table for another year. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm assuming this book would still be available in a digital format. Yeah, and yeah. if so, then if things go like that. I might start putting more stuff on digital because if you buy a codex in ninth, you get a digital copy makes me more inclined to focus slightly more on digital. And it also, it also depends on if they're going like when they start rolling out the ninth edition codexes, which we know they're going to, they've straight up said they're going to, 
if they're going to roll the additions from Psychic Awakening into those books, in which case you wouldn't need the Psychic Awakening book necessarily. All right. My gut feeling tells me they'll either roll that stuff into the new book or they'll put new stuff that overwrites the Psychic Awakening stuff in the new books. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. most likely. And again, rules are going to have to be tweaked because like we're in this weird state where the books have to be eighth edition legal, but you know, there's going to be <laughs> tweaks and errata for it to, to fit them fully into ninth edition. And again, like points, we know points costs are going to be different. So, right. Yeah. So, okay. I can, I can see that, but in, in a couple of weeks, we'll at least get to see what's in the book. Oh yeah. I definitely want to see what's in there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, then that takes us over to hobby progress. Uh, Dennis, I know you've actually been putting models together. Yeah, I, I, I did a Richard put them together during the show. Well, I got Ragnar Blackmane done before, but I did not get the rest of the Primaris. I'm not even going to say the squads because I keep on getting them all mixed up because they all began with N. Yes. Incursors, uh, in- infiltrators. These are infiltrators inter- and in- intercessors. In- there's Are they? <laughs> no, no, they're not infiltrators. They're infiltrators and inceptor. No, Inceptor. no way. God, yeah, you're right. <laughs> See, this is why I don't like Primaris. All their their troop names sound so much the same. No, you're you are not wrong. But yeah, so then I, I finished getting those guys put together and put into a KR case, and so they're nice and sealed away in the same one with some Space Wolf drop pods. Um. So. Incursors and Incursors, infiltrators. Yeah. Incursors. There we go. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's been the main thing, and just getting all of my stuff organized. And it was not that fun um, going through all of my care cases to find out where the Eldar um, vehicles and jet bikes were to put the little stands in because I'd had all the stands kind of piled up somewhere. Uh huh. So I, I finally have them with the proper things. <laughs> And that's pretty much what I've been doing for the hobby right now. And Richard, you've been working on the other half of Prophecy of the Wolf. Yep. I, I got Gazgol and um, Makari. Yeah, Makari put together. Uh, I haven't really bothered putting together the, the knobs or mega knobs yet because I already have a bunch of those put together. So there's no rush on those. Right. Um, See, and that's where Richard and I differed because, yeah, he said, yeah, mogs and mega knobs and mega knobs. I have a ton of them. I'm like, well, I have none of these in Primaris for Space Wolf, so they're brand new to me. So <laughs> put them together. How well did Gaz go together? Oh, he went together really well. Um, the Like the two different poses and like the way he like sits on, on that base it is is actually really neat. And there's only like a few different parts between those two poses, so I I I really like it. I I've I've already got him uh, primed, and I'm gonna be trying to to look to to get him painted pretty soon. Nice. Okay, I I did not even realize that he is a uh, he's got multiple poses. Yep. Yep, there is there's one pose where he's it basically he's got a pose where he faces one direction and a pose where he faces the other. Oh, okay. And and okay. then like he's got it, it's whether he's like kind of charging forward and has the the gun like sticking out straight forward and like the claw behind him or he's he's more kind of standing up a little more straight and, and that's just 
deceived by deceived by you know him being tipped on on where you put him what what like contact points you put him on standing on like the base uh-huh. piece uh to where he's just kind of, he's standing there with kind of like the claw more forward and he's looking the other direction and like you can put like smoke coming out of the gun like he just like he's finished firing it and he's showing off the the big claw okay cool yeah they the, cuz when they show him on the site like they you only really see him in the one pose so yeah Okay, so Kevin has. Yeah, there's the link to the kind of the other pose. Okay, so he's a little more kind of standing upright and chill as opposed to charging it. Okay, no, I dig it. I, that, that's cool. Like, I think that's one of the first times they've ever done a character with like multiple poses like that, even if they're relatively subtle changes. I mean, oh, I like- they they gave Abaddon three separate heads. Y- y- yeah, but it was all <laughs> the same pose. And all kind of the same uh, same facial expression too. But yeah. <laughs> How about you, Kevin? Yeah, what have you been up to? Um, so I have put a stop to kind of my work, the work, quote unquote, that I've been doing on my sisters, which had basically involved them sitting in a pile waiting for me to decide how I wanted to paint them. Um, so I've stopped doing that process, and uh, because of because I'm going to have to rebuild that list for ninth edition. So I was working on beginning to finish painting the last of my death guard because I had a you know half dozen models for it that needed to be completely finished. So I'm going to work on those. In the meantime, I've been cranking th- out on, things out on the 3D printer. So I've printed uh, three power swords and a couple more bolt pistols uh, in the last two weeks. Wow, you so, have been busy. Yeah, so a lot of cool stuff going forward for for, you know, our events, but also maybe for other other things that we want to do as far as like giveaways or raffles or stuff like that if we decide to. Mm-hmm. And then as for me, I uh, I haven't done a whole lot, but I yesterday I re like I touched up the priming on a bunch of models. Some of it was my like the Warcry Iron Golems band, but also like there was a couple of Chaos Space Marines and some uh, drones. I was just touching up the priming on and an old defiler that I've had primed forever. And then like, I was looking at it like, wow, I really didn't hit the underside of this at all. So, uh, so I'm going to work on kind of like getting back into painting. I, like I took a lot of May off from painting, so I'm going to get back into it. And so that brings us to the last part of the show, which is the morale phase. And, uh, on this one, I'm going to share with you a series. Uh, this is an animated series. Well, partially animated. It's partially animated, partially live action. But it is couldn't be more different than the last animated series <laughs> we talked about, which was Avatar <laughs> The Last Airbender. Uh, instead, this is a series on FX uh, called Cake. I don't know if anybody here has seen it. Mm-hmm. I have not seen it, but I have seen like the advertisements for it. Or like like a little trailer thing for it, so looks yeah, interesting. The the thing I would liken it the most to, and and my partner and I have watched the first season. We're getting into the second. Is if anyone listening is old enough to remember a thing that MTV used to have called Liquid Television. This is along the lines of that. It's kind of a it's a show of a bunch of vignettes 
Many of them are animated. Some of them are not. And they're very much on the kind of arty and weird style. But like each season has, uh, has a, will have a couple of, uh, consistent themes throughout or consistent, like repeating skits or sketches throughout. So for example, the first season had one called Oh Jerome No, which is all about a guy who is trying really hard to be a, a useful member of society and, and, uh, and find love. And he gets the right idea and he, each time he completely goes way overboard on it and self-destructively or there's one about uh quarter life poetry which is like life from the uh from like a millennial and younger viewpoint which we thought was interesting because like wow this is like not like our experience at all being like in our 40s but uh but there's also like weird things with uh tree secrets or uh the social life of like microscopic water life it's like it sounds really weird but it's the production quality is really good there's a lot of different styles if you are of an artistic bent or you just like weird stuff um it's a very interesting it's an interesting watch this is definitely not family watching i'll say that although our our 13 year old has really been digging the animation portions of it. This season feature, like they features, uh, an animation series called psycho town, which is a British one. that's kind of done with like paper cutouts, which I think has been on YouTube before. So they're kind of getting some, you know, some big TV, like TV exposure at this point. But yeah, it's like I said, if it's, it's weird, it's a bit rude. I mean, it, it's, it's like a lot of the stuff that you would see like late at night on adult swim, that mm-hmm. kind of vibe. But rather than like a half hour of the same thing, it's broken up into like several smaller bits in an episode. And then the episodes like carry like the same bits carry over episode to episode, which is another reason why it's like uh, liquid television, because like back in the day, Aeon flux was like a whole series that was done through liquid television rather than being mm-hmm. like one cohesive connected story. And they had a really so, great movie version of it too. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. great yeah. in the way that the Last Airbender was also a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Finger quoting as hard as possible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you can catch this one on Hulu, uh, and also like I think FX has it on demand. Uh, but uh, they've got the first two seasons up on Hulu, so you can definitely check it out there if you if that at all sounds like something. That would be, if your interest, like I said, it, it probably won't be for everyone, but if you just want something kind of weird to watch for a little while or something a little bit artsy, uh, it's a, it's a good, it's a good one. We've been enjoying it. And I think that wraps us up for episode 218. So yeah, in two weeks, we're going to have War of the Spider. We'll have more ninth edition details. Maybe we'll, we'll know more about the box set. We'll know, uh, We'll know more about terrain and monsters and tanks and blast weapons. And at this rate, if they're releasing psychic awakenings every two weeks, I mean, yeah, ninth edition might be mid July at this rate. So, yeah, <laughs> but uh, we'll times. talk about that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, interesting times. So it, it is, it is interesting times in many, many ways. 
But uh, anyway, until our next episode, uh, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and uh, the ninth edition train keeps on rolling. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.